Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. Great to have you on board today. If you're watching on YouTube, you can always find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is always a general discussion of production and IT-related topics. We're just here to answer your questions. Audience-submitted questions drive the show every day. So not only put your questions in, but vote on them, because those that are the highest voted gets the most attention here in the first hour of our show. Second hour, typically a deeper dive into a topic. And as everybody who knows anything about the show knows we've been at nab covering things from the show floor for the last week or so uh, and talking about it from before that so uh, we're going to be talking about video stuff today again not exclusively you can always get kind of attendant topics in there but we'll talk about what we saw during nab that specifically relates to video during our second hour right now however it's the first hour which means that it is general questions alex what have our producers sent in for us today Thanks, Bill. Uh, our first question is from Liberty White in Atlanta, Georgia. Liberty asks, for those who scrape data from web, from the web, uh, blogs, etc., what tools or websites do you use and why? And let's start with John Preto. John? Back in the old days, scraping was a lot of fun. It was a lot easier and you weren't violating it. There was no terms and conditions and privacy policies back in the day. Uh, all the automated tools that I've seen out there aren't that great. We just usually write our the code ourselves and so um you write the code you grab the data and then you parse it out into your database so i would find i would hire a programmer to do custom work for that jesse kester uh the majority of my scraping is done from youtube and i use the atem to do that so a couple of answers there liberty thanks for your question let's move on to the second question Next question is from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. And Andy asks, thoughts about the View Studio platform in pre-release for simplified virtual production? And he, has, he gives us a link. And we're going directly to Alex, who is back with us after your slog through NAB. Congratulations. Yeah, it, it, it looks interesting. I mean, it, it, it is a, uh, so I'm, I'm assuming this is connected to View Technologies and they have, they came on to our show earlier. So if, what we'll do is we'll reach out and see if we can't, if, if this is connected to View, um, the View Technologies who already has, have joined us once, we'll definitely bring them back to talk about View Studios. This looks like a really interesting potential. It looks like there's a lot of, how do we remotely control a lot of things on a studio um, as we build those? And so I think it'll be really interesting. Dave Troutman, you had a thought? Yeah, when I was looking it over, I thought this is a great opportunity to integrate all the different departments in film. I mean, costume, uh, continuity, um, all the areas should be able to share that platform and, and contribute to it. So I didn't see too much of that, but I think, you know, that's a potential growth area is to, if it's going to be a virtual production studio with lots of collaboration, it might also allow other departments to do, you know, uh, pre-vis on what they're doing, props and costume and makeup and all the rest. Interesting. Alex? Yeah, I think this one's mostly dealing with the technical end of the studios and, uh, you know, the lighting and the and all the bits and pieces there. We've, for a long time, we've tried to get the other departments connected virtually, and there is a very high resistance to it. <laughs> like, it's, it is, it is when it, when you think, of, yeah, the resistance is, is like it's rubber usually top-down resistance, isn't it? Like, directors don't want the... No, 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 it's, it's the individuals yeah. themselves don't want to be... So, what how they view it is uh, the more virtual connection there is to what they're doing. And we've been working on this for 15 years. Uh, the more virtual connection, the more someone's going to tell them what to do. So they they, they want to do their own thing. And they're actually, the, the individuals, from the directors to the costume designers to the everybody, you, we thought 
when I first started working hey, on film sets. we'd all like to talk to each other. Yeah, well, it'd be, be easy. If, idea, well, right? I, and I admit, I was like, it'd be really great for a producer because they could see what's going on and they could understand where their money's being spent and they, they do all these other things. And when I talked to people on the set, they were like, no, 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 no. <laughs> like, 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 let's not do that. Like, we're happy be in our silo. Leave us alone. Yes. Well, they're, they, you know, that's their kind of their their cocoon away from the producer oftentimes so that they can do what needs to get done and not have someone sitting there going, why are we spending money on that? And why are we doing this? And, and you know, everyone's, it looks like everybody's sitting around and it looks like, you know, like it's, so there's- They have there's, to rationalize their existence and they don't- Yeah, and, and, and they were just like, and they're just someone nitpicking them during the show. They say it would ruin, it would ruin the film, you know? And, and so that, so- so the uh, so I, I I that was a learning learning because I I thought like you I thought this would be amazing and we could we could tie this all together and and I and as soon as I started kicking it around with people on set I it died it died very quickly because they the they only had advance no I've seen is to get rid of a lot of the paper right no, they don't want to get rid advantage. of the paper they, they, well, that's the problem is that they, it's up here get. everybody's walking around with iPads so I don't know it what is. you guys do with paper but no it was uh, well they they all do the versioning that, they, and everything is is handled now but yeah. uh, with the collaboration of design yeah. and and creativity everybody wants to have their own playground thing yeah 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 exactly. I understand that totally yeah uh, in my experience it's this is a comp what do you think of it is that the right blue it's a comp. We're not there yet. That's not the final color. We have those all the time if people don't understand how to look at various parts of the process. So I can see both sides of this argument very yeah. clearly. Let's move on to the next question. Good discussion, though. Next question is from David Brady in New York, New York. And David asks, he says, in, in Zoom 5.14.2, I can no longer manually set the input volume on my Shure X2U. Is this an expected or new behavior? Uh, if the automatic option is unticked, the slider control automatically defaults to zero gain. What's up with that? Alex? So the proper solution for a USB input, as most inputs in, now including Zoom, is that Zoom doesn't affect it. And so the idea is behind the, the, the behind, behind that is that you have something that's, that's going to control the audio and that you no longer need Zoom to do that. And then what you're, what, it's the attempt there is to keep you have from having multiple gain stages. The zoom's just going to go, okay, what, what do you want? <laughs> you know, like, like you, 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 you figure this out and it leaves the USB under control. I don't even know why the X2U was able to, you were able to change the volume before in most devices, not just zoom in most software, as soon as you plug in an external USB, it generally just goes to off. Like, you know, whatever you are, you know, lets you take over and zoom. And most of the devices I've had have had that. I would highly recommend USB devices that have some kind of volume control. I thought the X2U did. It's interesting because I thought the X2U had a gain control on the, the device itself. And X2U, for those of you who are listening, is an XLR to USB converter. And it pops into the, if, if I'm thinking about the right thing, pops into the, the back of your, of a mic um, or your mic input, and then has a USB out. And a lot of us have had many of them you know, over the years. Um, but that one, I thought that it had a, a gain control on it, and I think you'd want to use it there. I know the Centrons version of that has a little gain control on it, but I, I think your point is incredibly well taken. If you get multiple gain stages in there, it's really hard to manage which control is on what level and what's feeding what. Let's move to the next question. Next question is from David Paskin in Miami, Florida. And David asks, I've heard lots of talk of 2110 lately. What is it? John Preto is going to demystify it for us, John. SEMTI, uh, which is a standards body. It's a, a society of motion pictures, whatever. I don't, I can't remember. That. And television Actually, engineers. Television engineers. Uh, is a suite of protocols for 
audio, video, um, and uh, and other associated data, including captions, et cetera, over IP networks. The video section is uncompressed, so they're the data rates on these things are absolutely gigantic. Uh, but you're seeing that it, Alex calls this NDI for grownups. That's what he calls Semti Twenty One Ten. Alex, uh, what about? Oh, go ahead. Seeing all the big boys right. use Twenty One Ten and all the NFL trucks now. Yeah, it's, so it's it's. I, I would say it's. I I, I don't call it. And it's not NDI for grownups because grownups can use NDI. It's just grown up NDI. <laughs> It's just like, you know, it's, it's the adult version. Um, it is it is a lot of bandwidth. Um, so 2110 is uncompressed. It's going to go through. So that means that if you have a 10 gig connection to your to your uh, computer and you're doing 1080, you're getting three feeds. <laughs> you know, so, so you and if you want 4K, you can't put it on that 10 gig uh, connection to your computer because it's, you know, it's coming out because it's uncompressed. But that's the that's the idea of 2110 is that you have uncompressed um, data going in and out. And Part of you know, so the reason that we we're talking a lot about twenty one ten is this is this is Semti's or is Semti's um, idea of you know how do we actually take what we were already doing with SDI and HDMI and those are all uncompressed formats. They may be scaled to four two two for color or so on and so forth, but but they are um, they are actually outputting uncompressed. So they want some version of this that's uncompressed. When you're doing, it's, when you're, we're doing what we do a lot of times, we're ending up on Zoom, we're ending up on YouTube. We can compress some of our video and not, and not be a problem. When we are doing broadcast, we do not want it to be compressed. You know, like we want to move that content around and do that. Now, what it does mean is that the, the connections that you have to have to your computer, the connections that you have to have. And I, I believe that one of the reasons that we saw a lot of 1080p stuff come out of Come, you know, um, uh, come out of uh, Black Magic is because that you know they they released uh, they released the cards um, that are now twenty one ten. So so uh, so um, Black Magic has a card, uh, a new card that will do um, three channels of of twenty one ten coming out of the back of it. Uh, so we now know where Black Magic is going with IP video, and so and so that and what that's probably going to mean is that. 2110 is going to explode. Um, now, people are going to run into the, whole, the, the, the hammer, which is that, man, do you have to have really good routers, you know, to make all of this work. You know, this is not uh, for the faint at heart. Um, you're going to start looking at really expensive routers and big routers and moving all that data around becomes a thing. It just moves the problem from a route. But the routing itself, whenever Blackmagic eventually, um, you know, gives us, you know, because Blackmagic doesn't, and a lot of us think that a lot after we saw NAB, that, and we, I guess we can talk about this in the second hour, but but we, a lot of us started to realize where all, you know, why why Blackmagic's not putting a lot into new routers, <laughs> like why you know why you know there's like oh now we understand because now you can just buy a Cisco router and make it work, but it has to be a pretty beefy one, but it, you know the, the the kind of routers that you're talking about are thousands of dollars, you know, to make this work. They're not the, the ones you buy at Best Buy, but so are the 40 by 40 routers that you buy from Blackmagic. So, you know, you're, you're, you're just moving, they're just moving that, moving to that new thing. But that's, I think a lot of us think, we haven't seen it, but we think there'll be a firmware update to the ATEMs that those, the new ones that have the four, um, it makes the, the four inputs on the back of the new uh, switcher, the four um, ethernet connections make a lot more sense now. You know, they didn't really talk much about it, but now, that could theoretically be twelve cameras going into those four little connections, uh, so that may make, make start to make a lot more sense. Go ahead, David. And and forgive me, the number twenty one ten is that resolution? That's a, that, is that no, no, it's with? it's the it is the um, it's the it's the 
protocol that is created by that was created by the SEMTI group. So that yeah, you know, that's just a designated number. It's yeah. like Rec seven oh nine or Rec twenty twenty. You know, this is this is twenty one ten. Is the and there's there's other ones, but this is the one that we're using here. Um, and and so uh, it will make a lot of things a lot easier. But it is, you know, it's it does take a lot more work. I mean, this is the grown up version of NDI. You know, and NDI is like, oh, we can do anything we want. And twenty one ten is you have to kind of think about it and build it up and put it together. But there's a lot of flexibility that comes with it. So, um, so I think that it, it could be really interesting. And it does mean that uh, potentially we can have a lot more routing, you know, with the big, with those big routers, you know, right now we're stuck with, you know, it's very expensive to do a lot of the things that we do. If we want, if we want a, a huge backplane and with lots and lots of IO going back and forth, we have, now we have to have a big, we have to have a very large router, but remember that a, a, a 144 by 144, uh, you know, UHD router is, Eighty thousand dollars. So it's it, you know it's not that you know these things cost a lot of money to do anyway. And again, this is for folks who want uncompressed. You know that's the that's the big push. Let's go to the next question. Uh, next question is from Tlaloc Lopez Waterman in Salisbury, Maryland. Without getting political, <laughs> it's gonna be hard on this one. Yeah. Um, there is a company in Santa Barbara, California, that after the change in laws about independent contractors a few years back stopped hiring me. Uh, is there a way I can do something to make it easier? Uh, for them to do so, so without getting political. Okay, so we're gonna right. we're gonna dance around this delicately. Chris Fenwick, start us off. Well, to be clear, you can't completely be unpolitical, but I will tell you, Talalik, that we've had this problem with contractors. Uh, the laws changed and made it uh, nearly impossible to hire into the small independent contractor. So what you probably have to do is actually set up a California business and not a, a lot of independent contractors will use their um, uh, social, social security number as their taxpayer ID. Nope. You have to have a, a legit California business. You might actually have to have a California address uh, That's that makes it comfortable, but you definitely have to use a taxpayer ID uh, number. Um, the delineation of what a contractor is, is just getting more and more strict. They're just, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll hold that one. Contact me, Talak, we'll, we'll have the real conversation. But the bottom line is it, it has, it almost has to be business to business. And the reason they're doing it is they don't want the tax liabilities that are certainly going to fall on them. And the problem is, is that those tax liabilities can be retroactive years back, three years back. And so it becomes such a nightmare to hire an independent contractor the way we used to do 20, 30, 40 years ago. I mean, it used to be much easier to just go, yeah, I'm a dude. I got a thing. Here's my bill. Give me some money. Um, but, but it literally has to be an absolutely legit California business uh, to make it so that the headache threshold gets to the point where their accounting people will say, yes, you can hire that guy. Jesse Kester. Yes, and if you don't have an LLC in um, California yet, get ready to pay the $800 franchise tax for when you set it up, and that's an uh, annual fee. 
Um, and please do remember to uh, put a suit on your business to make it easier for the company to approve any invoice. And that means uh, it comes from accounting at yourbusiness.com. It, the money is going into your actual company's actual bank account. It's not your name doing business as, and it's not your personal account. And that will make it easier for them to uh, to approve your services. Um, if you have a good relationship with the business, ask them if uh, if there are steps that you could take to make it easier for them to approve you. And if they don't get back to you on that, the the reality might be that um, they were using that as a polite way to refuse your services. They were using that as an excuse. Alex. So we deal we deal with this on a day to day basis. This is based on um, a, a, a bill that was done in California called AB five, um, and it was m- mostly aimed at Uber and Lyft, and it completely missed Uber and Lyft, but hit everybody else. Um, the reality is in the entertainment industry. Now we follow it. We cross every T and dot every I, you know, on our end. And the reason that we do that specifically is because. Um, uh, because we don't want to have any trouble, as was stated before. Most of the entertainment industry is ignoring it because they basically told people, they told, a lot of it has been, there's exceptions being built and they're trying to push the exceptions through uh, because basically they had to build a whole bunch of exceptions after they built the bill. Um, they had to build, start adding exceptions to everyone because they, they, they threatened to leave the, leave the state, um, and some of them have. So um, the, uh, you don't have to be in, you don't have to have an LLC or corporation inside of California because you can contract with people. You do need an LLC at least. So you need an LLC or a corporation, uh, S-Corp. S-Corp is going to be a little easier than an LLC, but you do have to have something. And mostly it's just a TIN number that isn't your social security number. That's the thing that they need to get. After that, we can just simply process the bill with you. We, it's not a problem. If they don't do that, what we have to do as a, cor- as a company is we have to make you an employee for the time that you're there. So literally, you're an employee for like five days or eight days or whatever. And so we have to run payroll. We have to run all of those things. And as Chris said, it's, it's the state making sure that it's getting the taxes that it wanted. <laughs> so by doing this, um, they don't have to chase after a lot of little contractors and try to you know, you know know go after them. They can just say, they can make sure that all the payroll tax this isn't just your income taxes. This is all the payroll taxes they want to they want to pull in as well. So um, so that's kind of a big dragnet that 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 they that they um, have there. So, but if you the what we recommend everyone do at this point is either build an LLC or a, or an S corp. It does have a little bit of an expense, but after that, um, you know you can do it. But I don't think you need an S corp. I think it's just an LLC. It's just mostly a tin a tin number that isn't yours um, is going to be enough for you to be. Now you have all those accountabilities now, so your your accounting gets much more complicated. It's not just the the the, the franchise tax. You're no longer just doing a ten forty or or something simple. But it's, you you do enough work. I think your your taxes are probably complicated enough. Um, so if you're, you know, so I think that, uh, you, you know, so you'll, you'll need a little bit more work done for your taxes to make that happen. But yeah, it's, um, in California, you really can't get a lot of work, um, above board without being, uh, some for some version of a corporation. Dave Troutman. This is really interesting because I've never understood the California law because I'm in Canada. Uh, we have different arrangements, but back when I formed my corporation in 1988, I made it a Dominion registered corporation so I could work in any province in Canada. And this has helped me quite a bit because I have, in fact, worked in most of the provinces in Canada. But I have done two two jobs out of the States, one for the uh, Joseph Kennedy Foundation 
in Washington, and uh, also three years with a company in California, actually San Francisco. And it really helped a lot for me to be incorporated because then I was dealing with them company to company and not Dave to company. Uh, I also had to do the whole registration with the um, uh, revenue agencies uh, on both sides of the border uh, to tell them that I was getting revenue from the U.S. Uh, one of the advantages I had, of course, is the Canadian dollar was smaller than the American, and I got a 25% bonus on everything uh, when I got paid in American dollars. Hockey players love that, too. But I think I'm hearing from Jesse that this is only in California, and I wonder if if this is actually different in Texas, for instance, or no, it's just California. other states. It's just the California, it's just the California law. Yeah, so for the international law. people, your recommendation yeah. of being a corporation is exactly right. Uh, it saved me all kinds of paperwork. And I have a 1080 listing and all the rest for being able to do work in the States. Chris Fenwick. I, I would also admonish, advise um, people who are individual con uh, independent contractors. There are longstanding... Um, understandings between the people in the in, in our industry and the people that we hire i need an ld for a day i need you know a couple of camera operators you know i need a grip truck and because the way these laws are written now as alex mentioned like you know you be you know you might have to become an employee for a day if you turn around and decide that you're going to apply for unemployment because that five-day job is over, you're causing enormous headaches for the people that sought you out and hired you to share you know, your skills with them. These are not, it might be legal, uh, but you're going to cause a lot of headaches for the people that, that reached out to you. Um, my advice. Never mind. Colleagues, uh, I was going to say uh, just just to follow on with what Chris said that that um, if someone filed for it wasn't like a huge thing. It wasn't like we stopped business. But if you filed unemployment after we hired you for five days, in not in own, oh, I know I don't know how own oh, no, no, actually handles it because I don't deal with that. But we uh, we we didn't hire you again. <laughs> like, like that, that was a, that was a you know like that was just going to be like a no go. Uh, in general, if you're doing a business, I would recommend just at least becoming an LLC. It makes it easier for everybody, you know, to to do this. And one of the things you want to look at is. You know, we, you know, with Pixelcore, we slowly built up to these things. And one of the things that makes it easier for people, you want to make everything easier for to hire. So we had, we had insurance, we had liability insurance, we had, you know, we were a company, we had, you know, accounting process, we could fill these things out. And as you make those things, as you make that smoother, um, you start to, you start to be, you, you will get more work, but it is an investment because it's just, oh, it's easier to, for a big corporation or even, or even a smaller corporation, it becomes, you just want to look at everything that can make it easier to hire you. Um, and those things definitely help. And as someone who I think I'm in, I'm in the same uh, opinion pool as almost everybody you've heard. It's been a gentle disaster uh, trying to navigate this. I will say I'm just going to try to articulate a little of the other side of that, which was in the early days, there were tons of employers who got bigger and bigger and bigger. And suddenly they were having independent contractors come in 50 out of 52 weeks of the year. And they were just paying them 1099 uh, without any uh you know, just with it was a big savings for them not to have to manage it. They could hire and fire at will, half the protections of somebody who is an employee. But 
they botched the implementation of this, in my personal opinion, pretty significantly, where it hasn't gotten much of the benefits that we were all promised if it went through. And it certainly has created a lot more uncertainty and a lot of people aren't getting hired the same way that Tolik is telling us he's had a difficulty coming in to work from the outside. So and yeah, be careful what you ask for sometimes. Let's go on to the next question. Uh, and rem- a quick reminder that, of course, you can ask questions uh, at any time during the, during the show and make sure to vote on those questions so we know which ones you want to answer first. Uh, next question is from Nathan Cashin in Oregon City, Oregon. And Nathan asks, a $12 HDMI to USB converter has been working fine with my Lumix G85, but I just got an Elgato CamLink 4K to see if it would do any be any better. Doesn't work at all. <laughs> the, the camera LED blinks on and off, even when connected directly to my M2 uh, MacBook Air. Any tips? Uh, Dave Troutman is going to help us out here, Dave. Yeah, I don't have the 4K Elgato face cam, but I do have the 1080. Uh, I have had some difficulties with the system recognizing my USB 3 connection. Now, you talk about the HDMI converter. I don't know why you would be doing that, but when you connect it directly to your MacBook uh, Air, uh, it should just see it. But it may not operate it because you need the Elgato software to do the setup and the handshake and all that. So I have a, a habit of launching my cam controls before I plug in my camera. I also wanted to ask if there's, you know, if there's a hub in the way or a, a port uh, with lots of other connections, it may be that the camera is not finding its way through, and that would be a thing to look at too. Uh, my uh, 1080 sometimes thinks the USB 3 port is a 2, and it gives me a warning. Please plug it into a 3, not a 2. And I'm going, okay, I unplug it, put it back in again. Now it sees it as a 3. So it may be a handshake issue. And I have had a blinking light. But that was part of what I had, is, is something in between the line and that. I don't convert mine to HDMI, so I don't know why that's necessary for you. But if it hasn't worked from the beginning, maybe send it back and see if another version of it or another uh, 4K is available to swap out and see if that one works. Alex? I think this is just converting the HDMI to USB. Not, not it's just it's just the HDMI from the camera to USB. Um, I think Dave's completely right that it, I think it's most likely if you have it going through a hub, it will not work because the hub is probably two a two point and it needs three. It needs more bandwidth. So the the, uh, the link is going to need more bandwidth. What I will warn you about with the Elgato CamLink four K is that it is um, it, it has a heat issue. Um, so if it's left on for a long period of time, it will just quit. Um, that's why we stopped mm-hmm. using them. I just wanted to just make sure everybody knows that it's a, th- a 3.0 out. It's not HDMI right. out of the camera. No, no. So he's converting it to HDMI as far as I know. Yeah, but there's... There's no there's no HDMI out on the on the cam 4K. No, 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 no. It's, it's the Lumix. The Lumix G... He's taking HDMI from the Lumix G85. Right, go ahead, David. David? Yeah. Uh, yeah, for what it's worth, I have one. I've had it plugged into, I don't, I can never remember if Hub or Dock, but it's the big fat powered one, you know, the, uh, uh, the OWC, um, or a, a CalDigit with a huge power brick. Um, I've got it, I've had it plugged in there for the past two years. I've been using it, haven't had any problems. Um, I haven't seen the overheating issue. 
Maybe that's a, a we saw that we, it was a, for us, it was a one-to-one relationship. We had a cut, we had three of them and three, we had three of them in shows and three of them, three of them had oh my in the gosh. middle of the show went bad. And, and, and it was yeah. always because they got really hot and then they turned off and, oh, yeah. and we were just like, well, okay, well, that's not the, that's not the one we're looking for. Sure. <laughs> okay. Sure. I stand corrected because I yeah. didn't read the question properly. See, Elgato cam link yeah. 4k. Yeah. Yeah. To convert, and I actually right, right. have yeah, one. Yeah, of those. It's, it's fine. It's fine. It's good. Right, and I was go talking ahead, about the Algato yeah, yeah, cam. Got it. Got it. Got it. We, we got it. We got it. We got it. New face. We got it. We got it. Dave. Okay. We got it. Dave. All right. We're we're oh, moving on. Oh, Chris Fenwick. Clear here. Chris Fenwick wants to weigh in on this. Let's give him a chance. Wow. Yeah. Hey. So, uh, David, you just mentioned uh, Hub versus Doc. I remember we had this discussion when we had uh, the dude from OWC. I can't remember either. Can we clarify? One of them seemed to be a much better choice to just say, always buy this one than that one. Uh, does anybody recall that conversation? My l- rule of thumb is if it's powered, it's a hub. And it's yeah, but even hubs, because I have an OWC dock here, and I had a USB-C uh, plug in the back. I think the and, question was, I think we got a confusion. I think it's David was the question. The question was for David there, right? Oh, well, I think the question is just to, can we clarify what's what's what? Um, Laura is saying in the back end that that the CalDigit TS3 is a dock. Um, look, fundamentally, whenever you plug anything in your computer, what you want is something with a big power brick that comes with it. You don't want dongle. I mean, some you can use dongles for keyboards and mice and stuff like that, but for cameras, especially for CalDigit uh, for um, uh, cam links, all that stuff, you want a big powered. Duck hub, duck hub, duck hub, whatever, whichever. It's a technical term, I believe. All right. Well, we've kicked this around a good little bit. Let's move on to the next question. Next question is from Tlaloc Lopez Waterman in Salisbury, Maryland. It seems Parsec has been acquired by Unity Industries. Uh, will this be a good change for the users? Um, Alex? I think so. I think that Unity is doing a lot of good investment. I think that uh, they are, you know, it's kind of interesting to see what happens with Unity. Most of us have been paying most of our attention to Unreal Engine and Unity is quietly investing and buying up a lot of things. And so a lot of us are just kind of watching what they're doing because they bought the digital team. They bought a part of the digital team from Weta. They now have Parsec and it feels like they're just building, they're just building something. There's like a Death Star somewhere that's getting, that's getting formed um, that, that we're all kind of wondering what is going on over there because you don't see a lot on the outside, but we keep on seeing them make these really interesting strategic investments. I think Parsec is, is uh, first in class in a lot of the way that they handle uh, remote, ca- you know, those remote connections. And so I think that it's going to be, uh, it's going to be interesting um, to see what happens next. Let's go to the next question. Next question is from Douglas Carmichael. The MSG Sphere in Las Vegas is fully based around a 2110 network all the way to the LED screens. Have the LED wall manufacturers mostly started supporting 2110 natively or would they need an SDI converter? And John Preto is near, right near the uh, the sphere. John, what do you think? From from what I'm reading, it's the, this company out of the UK called the Seventh Sense. They have this this media server called a Juggler, and the Juggler supports uh, 12G S- SDI in this thing. Looks like probably Linux box with fancy video cards based in it. And then from there, they can do fiber optics from server to server. And then from there. It's 2110, but out to the panel, I think they're probably going SDI would be my guess. I don't remember the number, but I saw the number of uh, LED pixels, and that thing is an astronomical number. Alex, your thoughts? 
Yeah, I believe, I actually, I, I, I can, I'll try to find out, but I believe that the MSG, oh, those LED walls are 2110 all the way to the, you know, they go all the way to the, into the panels that way. And it makes it way easier to run a pan, set of panels if it was all networked. <laughs> so, so I think that that, um, you know, so I think that that may actually, I think there are some panels, I, they're not very, most of them have other connections, but I think with these ones specifically, because remember, these aren't also, they're, the panels are not typically, they aren't, uh, you know, they're, it's not really panels. The panels are getting little bits and pieces of it. That's not the same as like connecting it to a TV. So, um, so anyway, we'll, we'll see. We'll see if we can do some more research on that. Yeah. The other thing that I read was that they'd had to sell, the, the owner and operator group for the MSG arena had had to sell some of their Las Vegas properties or shift the ownership of them to get enough money to finish even the last part of this. We'll I think it's they, about two years overhead. Over. We'll see if they make any money. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just, a, it's, it's a it massive looks, thing. It was outside of our hotel when we were there. I was, I was staying, and it looks amazing. I can't wait to go in. I just don't, I want to go see it immediately because I just don't know how long it will last. I just don't know how, how you can make any money with that. Uh, so then we'll see. Well, well see if YouTube can't, uh, YouTube can't make money with it. No, YouTube can. is going to make a lot of money. Yeah. I, I don't, I just don't know if MSG is going to. <laughs> it's crazy. All right, let's move to the next question. Next question is from David Paskin in Miami, Florida. And David asks, we had Cinemaker on office hours way back and the demo struggled, wondering what people saw them, uh, what, who, who saw them at NAB and or know the growth that they have, have gone through um, now. If only someone on the panel had just been on a Las Vegas NAB panel with Cinemaker and maybe somebody else we know, they would be, oh, Alex, there you are. Yeah, so I was on. I was actually on a panel with Cinemaker uh, at NAB, and and so uh, it, it they they keep on moving forward. So I think that they had they their um you know that presentation didn't go super well, but but I think that they um it's the the software is getting really good. I mean they they really have they they just keep on plotting forward. They keep on adding the integrations. The integrate the new integration with Zoom is really impressive, and so I think it's it's time we're gonna we're gonna reach out to them and. Uh, See if we can't get them back on and have them show it. We'll give them lots of warning so they, they can be ready for a, for a good presentation. That'd be nice. Let's go to the next question. Next question is from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. Anyone test the new Sony SRG A40 SRG A12 with the PTZ auto framing at NAB? Uh, I haven't heard of anybody who's gotten one of those in their hands. Alex, have you? Didn't have it in my hands. I got over to the Sony booth, but only for a few minutes. Um, I didn't. Ha I ended up having not very much time <laughs> at NAB. So, um, you know, I, I was speaking a lot. I had like seven talks or whatever, and so I, uh, um, and so between that and all the stuff we were doing, I didn't. I didn't see it. But I went by. I got to. I got to play with it in front of it for just a second, or, or watch someone play with it. Still too much headroom. <laughs> it seems like everybody's building headroom for old TV sets that need twenty um, percent uh, of space above the head and all the other things. And it, so it's it. It feels still like there's just a lot of old fashioned. Uh, someone read a book about how the framing should work, and what we need is someone to give us a, a control inside the system. That says, you know, like that literally just moves up what it considers vert what what it considers as a vertical alignment needs to be added to the cameras, you know, so that they just automatically align. And I, as a user, can say plus twelve or plus minus three or whatever I want to do, rather than them just automatically doing it. Can still do the auto, but just just apply that to the solution because it's just tracking your you know your face, and it just needs to decide where your face is. Let's go to the next question. Next question is from Guy Cochran in Seattle, Washington. Uh, is there is the new Panasonic UE160 the first PTZ uh, camera with built-in 2110? 
Uh, I haven't heard of others, but that doesn't mean there aren't necessarily some early ones out. I know everything's going in that direction. Alex, have you? I believe that it is. I, I think that it's the first, the first one. I mean, so technically there are plenty of things that are a PTZ head with a camera and the camera has 2110 and that works. But I think that the, the first one that, I, and then we have on the other side, we have lots of PTZ cameras with NDI. Um, I do think that the UE160 is, um, is the first one that we've seen that, are, that is uh, 2110. Dave Troutman. No, I'm, I've heard more about PTZ in the last year than I think I've ever heard in five. And it makes me think that this at-home work or remote control stuff is the anticipation of broadcast. Broadcast is going to not need a lot of cameramen. They're going to do it with PTZ and some help of, from machine learning. Broadcast has been doing it for a long time. Like if you walk into a news organization in a U.S., local TV station, there is one person running the entire thing. And that's been the case for the last 15 years. So broadcast move, they have these big, these big pedestals that have wheels on them and the, and the, the, the everything's really clear. And you watch, I sat in Pittsburgh one time watching, a, watching one of the morning, just the morning news for a local, this isn't network, this is just local news. And you see these little guys just moving around. They're just all, they have their places that have all been pre-programmed. So it's not just a PTZ, it's the entire pedestal. You know, just roam, they just roam around. They're all programmed to do it. And it, it just comes down to labor. If you're doing something every day, it's just a lot less expensive to have one person pushing buttons, um, you know, for everything than to have three or four camera operators working yeah, on in it. A new, in a news show, all the positions are pre-arranged. Yeah. I mean, you know what angles yeah. you need to go to and they just zip over to it. You know, exactly. And that's yeah, very so, efficient. Yeah, yeah, so so the um so so it's been around for a long time. I think that the big thing that's happened now is that it's it's just that there's so many more people doing it online that the market has gotten a lot bigger for these um, smaller solutions because the, the the solutions I'm talking about are you know fifty to a hundred thousand dollars per camera you know for for all the stuff that you have in it and these are ten thousand or twelve thousand dollars per camera. Yeah, and they'd be good in oh. venues as well. When you're setting up venues, you could start planning to put PTZs in, wouldn't you? Chris Fenwick. Uh. I got an opportunity to talk one-on-one -on -one with Grant Petty for a little bit at the uh, Black Magic booth, and I said that there's three things we'd love to see: more uh, presentations like he does. And he did warn me that if he did any more, that he wouldn't be able to run the company because he spends a lot of time working on them. And I'd love to see we'd love to see a PTZ camera, and we'd love to see uh, full autofocus on his cameras. And he dodged the topic masterfully. There you go. The, most of those guys are really good at that. Uh, excellent. Let's go to the next question. Uh, next question is from uh, Jack uh, Rupel uh, in, in Breckenridge, Cal uh, Colorado. Um, Resolved 18.5 supports USD. Anyone have experience inserting USDZ uh, in Google Earth Studio? YouTube has many examples in After Effects. Thankfully, Alex is back, and Alex has a lot of USDZ experience. Alex, we haven't done it. We haven't inserted USDZ uh, from Google into into Google Earth Studio, or I haven't yet. Now, mostly, we, a lot of us are looking at um, uh, the Resolve eighteen point five. It supports USD, so this is the Universal Scene Description, and this was created by Pixar, so that they can move scenes from one place to the other. Um, and so, uh, but what, what Apple did when Apple was looking at USDZ, they were like, why don't we zip this? You know, so why don't we just add a zip to it? So that's why it's USDZ. It's a USDZ binary that is zipped together so that, um, it's easier to move around in one compact file. And so it's treated as a, it's a zip file, but it's treated as a, um, as, as a, as a file itself. Um, and so that, that's what USDZ is. What we don't know is whether Resolve supports USDZ or whether it supports USD. 
Um, and that those are different because they're, they aren't the same format. It's not like it's just like, oh, it's close and then it's there. It's, they are a different thing. So, um, so it's going to be interesting to see for a lot of the tools that we have. So if you're using Resolve and you happen to have something like Adobe's um, Substance and you're working with that, Adobe Substance will just export USD or USDZ. USDZ is actually harder out of Adobe Substance than USDZ because it's designed for the bigger pipelines like Maya and a lot of the other bits and pieces. So it's gonna be really interesting to see what that what that support is. I don't have I don't have a specific around the Google Earth, but since you asked about Resolve, that's that's what we're, a lot of us are really interested. I'm gonna put Resolve on a very carefully put it on a separate computer and uh, try it. Uh, usually the the first the first releases of Resolve, um, I would highly recommend not putting into your central pipeline until you had a little more time to. To, to play with it. Interesting. And and Alex, do you know, is is USDZ the kind of format that's compressed, but you can also reach inside of it? I, some things it seems it like is. you have to that's, uncompress. That, that's the issue. No, no, it's 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 compressed. It's designed to stay compressed. It's, you know, so USDZ you is designed to be a zip file that stays a zip file. And um, and so, that it, you know, it just reaches into that zip file and looks for what it needs to look for and then comes back out again. And that that way it, it can be easily moved around and contained. I the the rumor is, is that the, when the when Pixar saw what Apple did, they're like, "Oh, why didn't we think of that?" <laughs> so, like, like that's much simpler than what we were doing. Uh, and I guess there's an audience question for this one, Dave. Uh, Dave? Uh, Kenny Ken, Campbell sorry. over in chat does confirm that uh, Resolve does support USDC. He says oh, he has some experience with it. Great, great, cool. excellent. All right, let's go on to the next question. Next question is from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. And Paul asks, the company Tilta seems to have a big presence at NAB. What are some of their new product offerings? Dave Troutman. Well, this is a company that does camera mounts, and they're usually for floating cameras or mobile cameras. So they built the, one of their biggest products is a ring that you mount a camera inside, and then you can run around with this ring, and it's like a Steadicam. Uh, they also do shoulder rigs for guys who have to have big cameras on the front of them and run around with that. They've got a lot of smaller products now, and that might be part of what you're asking about, is the new things seem to be uh, camera cages and things for GoPros, which allow you to put attachments on, very much like the small rig people. But the Tilda people are quite well established in the business. So... I think they'd be a product with a lot of accessories for people and DJI support and all the rest that allow you to work with mobile cameras and ones that are uh, on gimbals. Alex. Yeah, Tilta and Small Rig are, are the two that are kind of going back and forth between the t between the, between each other. Um, I think that mostly on sets we see mostly Small Rig, and then when we work with independent creators, we see a little bit more Tilta. But Small Rig is still probably the, the big the big game in town at the moment. Let's go to our next question. Uh, next question is from Jesse, uh, Jesse Coaster, Coaster, sorry, Kester, sorry, Jesse, I, I, I haven't had to be a reader before, Kester, um, uh, the uh, rocket sauce, uh, what, what went uh, right today in SpaceX, what went wrong, uh, what can the SpaceX team learn from the launch? John Prado will start us off, our rocket expert. They're going to they're going to learn a lot. There was a, there was a lot of interesting things from the launch. If you go back and watch it, you'll notice that all the en engines didn't appear to light and then a couple of big bursts out of the boosters. Uh so some, something was going on and they're going to learn a lot. Remember they crashed their first three rockets before they got the fourth one off off the launch pad. So they'll be back up and and launch again. No worries. <laughs> How big does that nichrome wire have to be to start those engines? I'm sorry, I'm just joking with my model rocketry days. <laughs> anyway, Chris Fenwick. What was interesting is uh, the coverage. I thought the actual SpaceX website um, or uh, stream, uh, 
they had really clean graphics. I really liked it. They had this nice little cluster in the lower left, and it immediately showed you. It's like, oops, some of those guys didn't light. You, I mean, with what was nice about it is there was no indicator as to what it meant, but immediately you understood what it meant. You know, there was a there was thirty three little dots, and most of them were filled in. Some of them were little circles. You know. Uh, and you immediately knew, oh, something didn't light. And uh, I thought the graphics were really nice. It was super exciting to see it clear the tower. They said that clearing the tower would be considered a success. It was also um, really depressing when you realize, oh, it's tumbling out of control. This is not a good day to be Elon. And for some reason... So much fun the, to watch, though. It was. He, he promised it would be exciting. And for some reason, people don't understand that SpaceX and Tesla are not the same company and Tesla Tesla crashed today also. <laughs> let's uh are there's that everybody? I think that's everybody. Yeah, let's move on to the next question. Next question is from David Paskin in Miami, Florida and David asks Alex, how can we watch your talks from NAB? We've had a lot of interest in that, Alex. What's the scoop? So, I will admit I hate being recorded on when I'm, when I, when I stand, when I do those things. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I allowed a little bit of it to be shot. Um, but I absolutely hate it. And so, um, so I, uh, poor Peter's probably like, why didn't you tell me anyway? So, but, but I, uh, I don't like it. I don't like, I think that, um, I hate speaking in front of people at these, uh, you know, at, at these things. And I, NAB was an experiment of like, I haven't done this for a long time. And somehow I, a lot of misunderstandings, I ended up with six of them or seven, six, six of them to do. Um, and I find them, uh, I, I find that the technology, especially given what I'm used to having here in my office, is so rudimentary and so frustrating and so painful that I never want people to see them again. Like just, just, you know, like that's, that's kind of like, so I don't know how many of them will get published because I think that I, I thought it might be better and I figured, well, I'll let Peter you know, do some stuff, you know, but I hate the way they look. I hate the way it, it came out. I hate the, I mean, just, just like, I'm not doing it again. Like I'm, I'm, I'm not, don't expect me to ever speak again in, in a, um, in person. Um, like it, it was just so bad, you know, and, uh, sorry, I just, I was so, by the end of the, by the end of the week, I was like, I'm never doing this again. You know, it's just, you know, they're going to either give me a screen and an internet connection, uh, or they're not, or, you know, and I, I'm happy to speak at every conference from here. Um, but I am never going to show up in person again. Like, is, and it's just because I'm hobbled, you know, I have to keep on connecting to what is just junk in the room. You know, the, the, you know, the stuff that you, when you get up there, you got this horrible little Extron switcher you have, you, you know, I, at times my, I could get my computer to connect, but not my, my iPad. Um, the audio is bad. The, you know, like it's just all of it, the lighting, you know, everything is, you know, it's low resolution. It's just, it was a horrible experience for me. Like just, just, you know, like I was just, and it was, it was hard because it took up all my time to be going to these, these, comp, these, the, these talks instead of hanging out with the team and doing more shooting and doing shorts and all the things I was having fun with going in the expo. And the last couple of times I had stopped speaking, I think, I don't know what got into me to, uh, to do that. So anyway, I, I had, my arm might've been twisted a little bit. <laughs> my folks said NAB to come talk. And, um, and uh, so I, I did it and I will, uh, don't expect to see it again. Like, and, and I'll do the talks. What I'll do, David, is we'll, we'll do the talks uh, here at Second Hours. We've already done two of them. So the HDR one and the green screen one, they were pretty much the same. Um, I'll look at the other ones that I did, um, the, and we'll, we'll find another way to do those again. Um, I think that those would be good as second hours and they'll be way better. An hour here will be way better than an hour and 15 minutes 
that I did there. It was just a, it was a brutal experience that I won't, I won't undertake again. So. All right, let's go to the next question. I think Chris had something. <laughs> oh, Chris, did you have, I'm sorry. I just wanted to, did I hear you correctly, Alex? Are you saying that you will not speak at a physical event again? Are you saying it here publicly I'll be on a for panel, the first time? But I'll never present again. Like, you know, if I show up somewhere and people want me to have it on a panel, I don't mind being on a panel. I don't like that much either. Um, the chances of me doing any anything in person again is pretty low. Like, it was, this was a little bit of an experiment. Um, I didn't. I don't particularly enjoy it. I just feel like it's so old and backwards and and just weird, you know. Like, and so it's 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 really. Uh, it was kind of a soul sucking experience for me. <laughs> did know, did like, did FMC or whoever you were speaking for? Did they have? Could they have brought you in remotely? No. What we'll do is is you know I'm I, what I'm with everybody that I talk to now. Um, because everyone's really excited about going back to, you know, we're all, they all, that no one wants to talk about doing digital first or doing something that might have people not show up because no one's showing, you know, the, 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 the attendance for all these things are way down. So they look at anything as a, as, and there's a lot of other reasons to be there. Like we had a great dinner on Saturday night that John put together. Thanks, John. Um, and, uh, and we had, uh, you know, it was great to see people and I went out to lots of little dinners and lunches and met with people. And so there's a lot of reasons to go to an event. I'm not saying that you shouldn't go to the event, but the sessions themselves are just, a, you know, they're just horrible, you know, and you limit the number of people because people like me, you know, like how many times can I actually do that? And that was a huge disruption in my, my week and I could have done a lot of other things. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of people you don't get to speak because they, they don't want to go to Vegas for three or four days or two days or whatever it is when they could have just come in from their office, you know, for an, you know, for a couple hours, you know? And so, uh, so I think that it's, it just doesn't make any, any more sense. Um, and I don't, you know, you know, anytime you show up on a stage in front of a lot of people, the camera angles are so, so, or there's, you know, like, it's just all, and, and, and even if, um, like you look at like, oh, there was a lot of people at the, the Cinemaker one was really fun. I have to admit that big truck, the magic bus or whatever, magic truck or magic box or whatever was really cool. I, I, it was way cooler than I thought it would be. But they, tried, they described it to me. I was like, oh, okay, that's going to be fine. And I got there. I was like, oh, that's really awesome. So um, so it was cool. And it was fun to talk with everyone, Andy and John Lauterbach. And, you know, like, the, you know, there was a lot of, and the Cinemaker guys were, were, were um, a lot of fun to talk to. But there was, you know, uh, maybe 80 people. We haven't had only 80 people watching this show every day for the last, I don't know how long, <laughs> since like day four. So, so the thing is, is that, uh, so I don't, I, I just felt like, you know, it's just a lot of work to get people into seats and everything else. And, and so I, I, uh, it definitely did not, I, I definitely going, we're going to go to more shows and I'm going to go to more shows, but really what I'm going to focus on is working with our teams to cover those shows. I'm not going to, I don't want to take up my time. The, the, the frustration I had is I was so excited I know I'm going on a little bit, but no, it's my first day back after three days. So anyway, I'm going to take that. But but the uh, I was so excited to see everybody. I, I will say that seeing everybody from the folks that were able to make it from office hours, it was so much fun to hang out with all these great people and people figuring this stuff out. And the first day was really rough. And by the third day, we were figuring, I mean, by the second second or third day, we were figuring it all out. And and it was just so much fun to see people that I see on the panel and that we talk about on Discord and having them all in one place. And so I, I loved, to be honest, I loved going. I just didn't like any of the session part, you know, like, and I was like, you know, and I don't think I'll do that again. I think if people want me to speak, I can come in remotely to a lot of sessions, but I think that I'd rather, you know, if I'm going to talk about something technically, I'd rather do it here with everyone rather than going to a conference and doing it. Um, I did, I will say, the only thing I'll say is that I made, you know, at the, 
there was one, there was in every session I did, there was one person that walked up that, yeah, that was really useful for me to know <laughs> that person, you know, like at least there was some, there was a whole bunch of them. There were some incredible folks doing work in, in DC that like when they explained what they were doing, I was like, oh my goodness, like we got to get you on the show. So there's a whole bunch of people that I wanted to bring on the show. There were folks from big companies. So I want to keep on doing that. So what I've been recommending to everybody that I talk to is give me one room. Like, so, you know, the the FMC part was like 20 rooms, right? Full of things, 20 or 30 rooms. Give me one room that's digital first. I just want one. We'll connect it with the internet. I'll get it sponsored by somebody. Um, and everyone will come in over Zoom and there will be no, you know, people when they come in, they see the person up on the screen. We'll have a nice LED wall. You know, we'll have a, it'll look pretty and people can still stand up and interact with those folks. They'll look out there and see them and hear them and everything else. Let us have just one room. And what I guarantee is that after we have one room, the next year we'll have two rooms and then three rooms because it just makes way, 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 way more sense than than what we're doing now. So it was just, I, it just underlined. I gave it a shot. I'm not going to do that again. <laughs> so anyway, so, Tell us how you really feel. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but, but for people think, oh, Alex, not going to more shows. I'm definitely going to the shows. Like we're, we're looking at, we're immediately pivoting to cinema, uh, to, to Cinegear. And um, I'm really excited about the, what we did. And we'll talk about it more on Friday. But I thought there were a lot of things that didn't work. But NAB overall, to me, was a huge success, you know, of figuring out a lot of things that we did um, on a whole bunch of levels. And so we're pivoting to Cinegear. I'm going to keep on going to these, but I want to go and hang out with the teams. You know, I don't want to be having to go somewhere else and talk and go somewhere else and do something. I just want to be there. I'm going to hang out with the production teams. We're going to figure out how to do just incredible coverage of the expos. Um, and uh, and possibly start doing digital first events. All right, let's move on to the next question. Next question is from Tommy DeChance in St. Paul, Minnesota. And Tommy asks, I split my VGA from the pro projector feed and put an HDMI to VGA connector onto my A10 Mini Pro. The input is black. Uh, where did I mess up? Uh, HDMI to VGA, it would probably be the other way around because I think the ATEMs only have HDMI in. Alex, can you figure this out? Yeah, so the HDMI, the VGA, you need a processor for them. They have processors for that, but those are not cables. They are boxes. Um, the one that we used to use was Barco. Um, um, Barco had one. It was a 1U box that converted the HDMI to VGA, but it's not as simple as a simple um, uh, connector. You can, there's, there are, um, the, getting between those two formats, one's a digital format and typically one's an analog format, and they need processing to, to make that actually work. There you go. Next question, please. Uh, next question is from Paul Wallace, and he says, what is the Rode Streamer X? And David Paskin will help us with this. David? The Rode Streamer X is uh, a, an audio and video interface into one. It's a really interesting device that I have absolutely no use for. Um, but if you are a solo person, you've got you know one video source, one audio source, uh, and you want to have uh, silly sound effects, it might be the right thing for you. Not at $400, if you ask me. Ah, interesting. Okay, let's move on to the next question. Thank you, David. Next question is from Keenan Campbell in Nevada, USA. And Keenan asks, what does everyone think of live stream event from a vendor booth? Um, I was fortunate enough to be on one of them from Epifan. Great way to keep uh, the, com the conference hybrid. Uh, John, uh, John Preto. Yeah, kid, thanks. You know, Keenan, congrats to Keenan because I watched this uh, live feed from Epifan and uh, Keenan did a great job. The video looked great. Uh, I think it's fine. I see lots of vendors do live broadcast out to their own audience, which makes sense to me. Alex. 
Yeah, we've done a lot of these. Um, I will say that the, the looking at it from the back end, uh, the the average view time on streams from uh, booths is very very low. Like so, so it's it is uh, oftentimes measured in seconds, um, sometimes measured in short minutes, one or two minutes long. Um, so when we read the the data of the, I don't know what how this one might have been made way different. I didn't I didn't see this one, um, but as we read the data from the back end as a, as a person doing these, we kind of consider them failures. Um, you know, they're they're not they don't. Um, from a pure audience perspective, it's an idea that people come up with, but they're not. If they're actually looking at the data in the back end, usually they're not very successful. Yeah. Next question. Next question is uh, from uh, Stephen Smart in Glasgow, and Stephen asks: Are there any "quote unquote" cheap devices available to transmit stereo sound from a mixer uh, to speakers without using long cables? Well, there certainly are plenty of wireless audio devices out there. Uh, just even the standard body packs that we use, uh, the better ones. Now, that's that's where you're going to get into trouble because cheap indicates you're probably looking at not highly engineered solutions. There are some very small uh, wireless kind of radio frequency devices that pretend to do this, but in every time I've ever played with them, they're they're prone to noise. They don't have very long range. Uh, if you got two good wireless microphones, you could send two mono channels, which is stereo to something, but it, it, that would be an expensive solution. Alex, do you know of anything that, that does this specifically? I mean, I'm assuming when you're talking about this, you're trying to go from to a wired set of speakers. Um, so, you know, so the speakers themselves need to be self-powered. So that's the first piece of that. Um, and then after that, I mean, you, you you have an impedance issue because the speakers, if you're getting like little computer speakers that have eight and eighth inch jacks, then that's a, another problem that you have as far as the impedance of what, what you're expecting to transmit if you're doing like a wireless input output. Um, and then if you're doing XLR, of course, the, the equipment starts to get more expensive. The other thing you're going to have trouble with is if you have any number of these speakers, uh, the amount of crosstalk and everything else is going to make them intolerable, in my opinion. If you go cheap with wireless, wow, is that painful. Like, it's just, I've and I've done it, thinking that this was going to be a good idea. And you just get so much phasing, static, hit, you know, like cheap transmitters are just a, a, a recipe for disaster. Jesse Kester? And don't just test it in your home studio or your garage. Go to the area where you're planning to use it and test it, especially if it's a metropolitan area. In fact, if it is a metropolitan area, don't even bother going out to test cheap wireless transmitters for uh, production. And Chris Fenwick. You know, uh, Stephen, it's, it's hard to know exactly what your use case is, but... Um, Immediately, my mind went to, you know, a mixer like in a club or a small venue with a band. Um, and the popular thing that I'm seeing all the time is people using these Behringer mixers. And instead of putting the mixer out in the audience, they're just walking around with an iPad. The mixer is then on stage, and then the cable runs are much shorter, and they're just remotely controlling the mixer. That may not be what you need. You've probably thought of that, uh, hopefully. But if not, that's another idea, a way to solve the problem. Okay, thank you. Next question, please. Uh, next question is from Alex Forty Golner in London. And Alex asks, uh, who on the panel will be going to IBC in Amsterdam in September? Should I change the ticket for the trip to Italy that week? And Alex, what do you think? I'm, I'm probably going to go. I can't say 100% that I'm going to go, but there's probably like a 90% chance I'm going to go. I want to do the same thing that I did in NAB with all our European, uh, you know, our, our European cohort. So I want to see everybody. I, I did really enjoy it and, uh, and, and hanging out with everybody. And so 
I, I, I do, again, I do think I'm going to go to a lot more conferences, um, but it's mostly just to hang out with the office hours folks. Like that's my thing is like, let's do some production together. Let's all hang out and uh, have some dinners and stuff like that. But I'm more interested in doing the more dinners like what we did with John and with everybody that showed up. Um, I'm interested in doing more of that um, and less speaking. <laughs> so, and, and more production like what we did. And we're just going to keep on pushing that envelope. So I would say that there's probably 89, I can't ever guarantee it. My production schedule sometimes is not my own, but I would say um, 80, 90% chance I'll, I'll be going to IBC. Uh, Chris Fenwick, we've got a couple more questions before we transition to the next. If they one. haven't finished the bridge, I will not be going. I no longer fly. <laughs> <laughs> you need a bridge? Ooh, it may be a submarine. Over here. Let's go bridge. to the next question. Yeah, next question is from Gordon Lake. Uh, what is the best, uh, in, in Los Angeles, California, what is the best way to dip one's toe into the 2110 waters? And should you? Uh, so, I, I don't, uh, there you go, Alex. I would wait about, um, I'd wait a couple months and see what Black Magic does as far as connecting all these things together. Right now, they just released a card, you know, and so we all know where they're going. So we, what we what you want to do is wait for the firmware updates so that we see what cam how the cameras handle it, how the switchers handle it. And then I would get a good switch. I would um, give it a shot and see what, see what happens from there. And the last question for the pre- uh, last question is Douglas Carmichael, and he says, "Do you think we'll see the lower level rack mount constellation switchers get twenty one uh, Ethernet twenty one ten? Will bringing twenty one ten to the lower end stimulate a sea change in the industry?" Alex, yeah, I think that that's exact. I think Douglas has it right on. I think that this is going to be, and we're kind of this helps us transition into the second hour. But uh, this is, I think, what twenty one ten needed, which was to have Black Magic building these in mass. It's not just big cameras and trucks, and it's not these giant broadcast solutions. It's suddenly, you know, all these Black Magic switchers. It's gonna, I think, it's gonna move the industry into uh, uh, into a different place. So it's pretty, it's pretty exciting. All right. It's the top of the hour, and this is our video-centric look at what we saw at NAB, what the uh, information was that came out of the show. Uh, by the way, the, for those of you who don't have a lot of NAB experience, one of the things that's a little interesting is both the show itself and uh, a magazine that's been around for a long time called TV Technology Today, uh, they traditionally do their best things we saw at NAB. You can argue whether or not these are actually the best, but there's a, usually a lot of kind of categories inside those categories. They pick a product or two. And I was really excited to see that uh, many of the people we've had here on um, Office Hours as second-hour guests had their products showcased in the best of NAB. So if you look up TV technology today or NAB best of show, you'll see some of the things that the industry, um, those publications or NAB itself have said this was kind of emerging technology that was good to keep an eye on. Uh, Alex, what did you see? You were there. Tell us what stuck out for you. You know, I wish I had seen more. I, 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 as I said, I spent a lot of time in uh, talking and, and all those other things. But but um, what I will say is that I, uh, uh, the LED walls, you know, a lot of virtual production LED walls. So we saw a huge presentation of View Technologies. Um, so View had, uh, they had this uh, bike <laughs> that was in between Central and North Hall. And it was like a, a Tron light bike that was there. And they had a, a huge uh, LED wall behind it. And so people could get on and shoot a video of them, you know, and they're changing all the video and they're moving the this arm around. And so the, uh, it was MRMC and it was moving... Uh, moving the arm around and it was pull, you know, tracking the background with them to create a shot, and it was really, really cool. It was one of the one of the better demos, and it just filled up. I mean, I don't know, 
It's an expensive demo to do, but well done. Very well done by them. They just had, they probably had 50 to 100 people standing around watching, looking almost the entire show. So I, I, that was a really thing. But what we also saw is we saw the same thing over at Ross. We saw many, you know, aluminum, aluminum. Um, I can never say that. It's not aluminum. It's Ill aluminum. Uh, had had some great um, things. There's all, you know, there's a lot of really interesting, um, you know, everybody's moving towards that. And now you're starting to see LED walls that are much finer pitch. So the pitch is starting to go down dramatically. So, you know, really we had lots of Murray issues in the past and, and we were, because we were dealing with things with uh, 2.3, 3.2, 2.8, you know, all these, um, the pitches, the distance between the LEDs. Now we're starting to see screens that are coming out in the sub 1.5s. Um, and so that was, um, you know, so now we're start, we're not seeing the Murray issues that we saw before. Um, so I think that it's a, it was a really interesting thing. The, um, a lot of more full frame sensors and large frame sensors. Um, I think that two thirds, even micro four thirds are kind of falling away, you know, so that we're, we're, we're seeing more and more cameras, uh, especially in the Sony line and some of the other lines that are in, you know, obviously black magic has moved there quite some time, but, but super 35 and full frame is what a lot of stuff's going to now large broadcast is still at two thirds because you have focus issues. But, um, but I think that, uh, in general, we're seeing a lot more, um, in that area. Uh, it was good, you know, and then we're seeing more cameras with IP. So red has a camera that's doing eight, I think it was eight K, eight K 60 out of it, I believe. Um, but that's all it's encoding it. It's not, it's not doing it out of, uh, uh not doing it with copper. And so we are definitely seeing the move, uh, to, um, using ethernet for, for a lot of those things. So, um, those are some of the, some of the things that, that a bunch of us saw. And of course the, a lot of things, you know, black magic is nearly the entire hall. <laughs> like when you go over to like, it's like half, black magic is like half. It, it, you know, it's hard for you to, I don't know if you saw in the video when we, when I think when folks went over, but just so you know, when you're there, black magic is like half of the North hall. Like it is, it is like, there's all, you know, and, and all the other companies feel very small. It's just like this expansive, um, you know, booth. And so it's just really interesting because they've come a long way over the time that I've uh, gone to NAB. Dave Trauma, what were your thoughts? I was impressed by the presence of B&H all over the place. So yeah, that was one thing that I noticed right away. The other one, of course, for me, best of show was the Magic Box. Uh, Guy Cochran drove Jeffrey all over Las Vegas, and we got to watch it. And the other night, of course, I was watching something else, and I realized I might have been watching a Magic Box because these people were driving around and not paying attention to the road. So I thought that was really realistic. And the fact that the camera can move around the car and look through various windows along the way, that we know how hard that is with the camera rig in a car. And here it was done all in virtual, and they can do trains and airplanes and that sort of stuff. I was really fascinated by the car that goes out and gets the pictures. And I had some you know, technical questions in my head as I was watching this, but I think that was best of show. John Preto. Alex, did you, did you, your hypothesis come true on 8K120 and did you see the Sony video wall? You know, the Sony video wall wasn't, the, they weren't doing the same demo. So, so it wasn't, it wasn't the same, but it was, uh, but I do think that we're going to, you know, there is a, there's a lot of tech, there's a lot of force behind higher frame rates. You can, you know, you can hear it now a lot and NAB you'll hear it more than if you go to somewhere, there's a bunch of filmmakers like Cinegear, there'll be a lot of discussion and that's they're thinking and the, the, when you talk to filmmakers, the the drama is between twenty three nine eight and twenty four. <laughs> like they don't, they don't, they're not thinking about anything else. Uh, they don't, they don't consider anything else viable. 
Uh, but at NAB, you're seeing a lot more people talking about, you know, high frame, you know, you know, they talk about these cameras. And remember, every TV you've bought in the last five years is capable of, not necessarily monitors, but every TV is capable of 120 frames a second at least, if not 240 frames a second. They already have, they're already built up for that. And um, and so, because the, well, long story there. But, but anyway, so there's a lot of TVs that are already ready for it. And what you're seeing is all these other cameras slowly wrapping up to it. Um, and, you know, many, many cameras have 120 frame per, se- per second option. Now, they mostly push them as slow motion, but obviously, uh, once the 120 transports start to really pick up speed, um, you know, right now we can't transport it very well, you know, it through anything. And so that's going to be kind of the next, um, one of the things, discussion that we had, at, you know, one of those hallway discussions that they talk about a lot is, um, you know, a lot of times we have, uh, it was, there was a discussion about how to move 120 frames per second, which I hadn't thought about before, which was the idea of using two 60 frame per second images and literally interleaving the so one uh, one field it's like fields, but having two SDI connections that are sending two 60 frame per second image um, frame rates. And, and it's every other frame between them. And so that you just need something on one side to grab onto that and something to do something with it on the other side um, to get the frame rate that you could get theoretically 120. And it's very similar to what we used to call PSF, uh, PSF which was what Sony did to get interlaced to take progressive through it is to kind of break those things up. So we'll, it'll be interesting to see if that becomes kind of the in-between solution. Of course, 2110, as we talked about before, fixes a lot of that, but there's so much bandwidth, 2110, you know, what do you do with it? You know, like if you wanted to do 8K120, I don't even know if there's um, switches that would, you know, pass that. So that's that's the issue that you have. Yeah, it was really interesting this year. I, You know, for me, it's the continued digitification. Is that even a word of everything that I used to see in analog there? And uh, so many of the traditional names that I have known from the past NABs are just really moving into this space. A few things that kind of got stuck in my mind. Uh, JVC, who I hadn't paid much attention to, was one of the best of show winners for their little NDI-enabled handheld broadcast camera. So it just tells me that the more of the data stuff is moving in. Um, Lucid Link was also another one of the uh, and so, so many of the people that have been on the show here and have done that, Altheon got got really it, both the NAB and the TV technology signaled them out as kind of on the move. Uh, OWC, the jellyfish, which wasn't even on the radar for a while, uh, won one of those awards. So I try to scan through that and say, what's the overall feeling? And for me, it's the fact that this inexorable move away from the broadcast industry that I knew, the computerification, the digification of all this stuff, it's just streaming through everything and we're never going back to the way it was. And so the days of plugging in a BNC connection and that's professional video are pretty much dead now. You're in the process of uh, putting in some form of TCP IP connection or some sort of ethernet. That's where everything already is and if you're not playing in that arena, you're not really paying attention to where our industry has shifted. Alex, I, I will say that we um, uh, we oftentimes think f- the future will come faster than it does. I, this is a problem that I have oftentimes. So when when I think that when you say that 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 SDI and everything else is dead, it means it's a projection twenty years out. <laughs> <laughs> 
like fair enough. Everything there's a wait. I always think everything's going to change really quickly, and you go well. You can see what everybody's doing. You can see where they're going. Um, and you know, when I saw 8K 120, you know. Well, before the Sony booth, I saw it uh, maybe eight years ago. <laughs> you know, so it was like, this is amazing, and we're still, you know, not there yet. So, so I think that, um, so I think it'll take time. But I think that Bill's totally right that that you can see the writing on the wall. We just don't know when the writing is going to become something that that we're all using. Yeah, and I just I I know I'm paying attention to my purchases, going what's connectable as opposed to what mm. is designed to work the way I have for. Uh, 50 years. So uh, let's move on into our questions. We've got some great questions here. Next question is from Kyle Hammond in um, uh, Chicago, Illinois. Uh, did Alex visit the OBSBOT and Insta360 booths to determine the winner of the small kit PTZ uh, camera cage mount? <laughs> Alex, did Matt. you see this happening? Was there blood? <laughs> no, I, I, I did stop by. I mean, the Insta360 stuff, I mean, the, the link was once, bare, in Insta360, there's all these 360 cameras and all the other things, and the Insta360 is like one little thing there. Um, but I think that there, we did get a lot of people to put some pressure on Insta360 of, hey, it'd be really good. I was definitely one of them. They, I, I think that at some by the time I got there, they were not very appreciative of the number of people that were asking for um because I, I i will admit that someone it came up in, in my talk and i might have told everybody to go to the booth and ask for it so so anyway <laughs> so anyway <laughs> i was like apis apis would be really great with this with this camera and so so i think that they were by the time i got there they were a little worn out but i think we've made our point we may we may continue to add some pressure from our group here i wanted i actually wanted to go and see where they were about it before we started sending them emails but i think we're going to start sending them emails we just want to keep the pressure up um i do want to get an ob spot the ob spot looks really good I, I it's hard for me to tell in a booth what it looks like so you know what i need to do from my end is to is to go and get um you know get one and try it and you know see 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 how it compares to the link let's move on to the next question next question is from alex forty goldner as much as i appreciate the updates coming to resolve premiere and LumaFusion, has anyone got the impression that any nle makers have a vision beyond add cloud and ml and, and machine learning assistance chris fenwick yeah alex i i know exactly what you mean it's it gets a little old when people just um you know drop in all these buzzwords and you know <laughs> popular things that you know like if i just were to mention a certain couple of letters i'll get more buzz but um for those I, of you who are not on the video he just popped up and now with ai super oh, look, over now with his AI. shoulder <laughs> So this um, is Chris with AI. So, uh, but I agree. I do think, however, that being present, even if you're going to, you know, cater to the buzzwords, uh, is better than not being present. And Alex knows exactly what I mean. Uh, Alex. I think they should now, now with human intelligence. Hi. <laughs> Now with real people. <laughs> now with real people. Uh, that's what that, that'll be the next thing. So I think that obviously the big thing that everyone talked about is is text-based editing. So both Premiere and uh, Resolve added it. So this is what a lot of what we saw with Descript was you could go into Descript and you could just add all these things and it would just use the text to do the edit. And that, that's a pretty, pretty heavy thing. I, I will say that Resolve, you know, the re I don't know exactly what the numbers are, but I've been told that Resolve has about three times as many engineers as um, Premiere and about 10 times as many engineers as Final Cut. 
And, um, and so, and you, you feel it (laughs) when they open up an update, the updates are not only so, so heavy, they're just so, they're so deep. They have a relighting tool that they built into it that is, you know, just taking the video and letting you relight things. And they have, um, you know, the text-based editing, um, they have the support for, you know, the USD. So there's a whole bunch of things that they're adding so many things so quickly to it and they're adding it across many, many, many things. It was really interesting to see. Of course, a lot of us that use Final Cut were like, well, when are we gonna see something with Final Cut? I still think that we need to wait until June to see what Final Cut and Motion they do. So I think that there's a, a, you know, if we don't pretty soon, if we don't see a lot of movement, but I think that Apple has until next this October because that's when they oftentimes do these big releases of, of Final Cut Motion compressor and so on and so forth if they don't show something pretty impressive this October I think Final Cut is you know dead you know like it's it's not gonna I mean it won't be dead like people will still use it but it, it it'll fall off of even I mean Resolve is picking up speed so fast um, Apple has to make some adjustments or or just know that it's going to be kind of a side project and it's really hard to watch because it's i've been using final cut since 0.9 but but i think that they're they are you know we're not seeing a lot of updates i i still think that i have an opinion that final cut is um going to do a huge amount of uh final cut and motion are going to be the backbone of content generation for the ar just um, initiatives that that Apple's doing. I think that that's why suddenly everything's slowed down is because there's this huge lift to get ready for the summer and into the fall and that there's going to be all the 3D tools that we've seen and all the 360 tools and the 180 tools. You're suddenly going to have all of these tools that are built around it because that is a, because what's going to be missing when the the biggest problem with launching something new like AR and VR is building the content for it. And so what will, you know, I think that, that what Apple needs is something that's going to build that content. And I think that they're potentially focusing an enormous amount of the new technology that Final Cut and Motion are doing to leverage that content and to be able to tie it in with Xcode and tie it in with, you know, just scene generation and so on and so forth. I have no data. I have no intelligence. It is literally me just guessing that they put 3D stuff in, they put this stuff in here, that, that, that that's where we may see it go, um, then it's very valuable. Otherwise, I think that, I, you know, I'm having a hard time seeing, you know, at first, you know, for a long time, we saw creators at YouTube using Final Cut. You know, they, they, they wanted to go fast, they had to produce a lot of content. Um, what we're seeing a lot, and a lot of the creators I talked to at, at NAB is a lot of them are starting to, you know, move to resolve, you know, and so, and, and so that's the thing that we're, that we're paying attention to. Absolutely. John Preto. Alex Goldner, you must be listening to Chris and I, Chris and I talk about this specific topic yesterday. And the reason why I raised my hand is so Chris can continue his statements because he had some really good analogy about old final cut, having the same situation that we're in right now, Chris, Chris. Yeah. I actually raised my hand to add into that. Um, if you look at if if you go back historically, and Alex can do that a lot, of, uh, and I'm talking about Golner um, and Mr. Lindsay. Uh, I, don't listen, and it, I don't. I don't do history. I only do. No, no, no. History. Well, you do. You <laughs> you do, may not do it, but you've lived it and yeah, you yeah. remember it. So don't be silly. Uh, but if you go back and you look at the development of Final Cut Four, Final Cut, you know, four point five, we had HD, we got five, six, and the difference between six and seven was um colored markers like like that was the that was like the biggest feature 
that they added in Final Cut 7. And, and, and therein ends the development of what I call Final Cut Classic. But the difference between 6 and 7 was frighteningly dismal. So if you were sitting there going, oh, I can't wait for Final Cut 7, and then you went, oh, I get to colorize my markers. What, what, what's the point? And, and if you then look back in hindsight, you realize, oh, they were already yeah. deep into the development of Final Cut 10. And so there was a coasting period where they just went, nah, you know, just get something out. But really, all of the diversion was to Final Cut 10. I don't know what's going on. Uh, I do have friends, but I purposely don't ask them the poignant questions. Uh, but it feels to me very similar to the time between Final Cut 6 and 7. There seems to be a bit of a coasting period. And it may be that they have uh, diverted people to Final Cut 20 or Final Cut you know, 3K or whatever it is. I don't know. Um, and it may be that there's been a brain loss of, of great people that have left. We know that some really spectacular people have left over the last three years. Um, and it's, it saddens me because I consider them to be, you know, very dear. Well, they still are very dear friends, but I would actually send them, uh, messages when I'd see like great stuff on Instagram about their vacations, get back to the office and work on my editor, <laughs> you know? Um, but, uh, where we are right now feels very much to me, kind of like that coasting period between Final Cut six and seven. Seven was, uh, a, a, a paltry update. Uh, in the Final Cut world. And, you know, maybe Alex, we're going to see something really spectacular in the next year. Final Alex. Cut Ultra. Yeah, right? <laughs> who knows? Final Cut Omega, <laughs> exactly. some gigantic yeah, exactly. change. Oh, but we don't know. Yeah, I will say that it's interesting to me. I mean, I, I always glance over at the Avid side and go, what's happening? And if you think the crickets are bad on our side, have they introduced... You're the guy? anything <laughs> you're the guy bill that looks at avid you're the one huh well i keep my yeah exactly <laughs> i keep my eye you know and this is the hollywood major player monster that everybody was scared to death of and you know they maybe still, made two changes <laughs> it's still it's still 90 percent of the film market like you Isn't know it's it? it's yeah. it is yeah it's it's a and and 90 of the large film market and it's just there's a lot of subsystems for scale that avid has yeah. that still the other ones if you go off to something other than avid you're still climbing up a very steep hill to try to get it done get it done with large edit teams with a lot of assistance with a lot of, so we, you know there's just things it does that the the problem people always ask like why aren't why isn't apple paying more attention to filmmakers it's because they're really hard to deal with you know like so that you know like they're really they want weird niggly little things and almost nobody else that's buying it will use them and so avid kind of owns that market but the and but the problem is it's very hard to innovate and do things that are big and it's very because they want these weird little things that they need for their filmmaking and if and you move the, their button they go and crazy and <laughs> well and and also that they're the only ones that need that so when you yeah. make something for LA or Hollywood you're not making it for educators you're not making it for corporate you're not making it for creators you're not making it because they don't need any of those things so if you, the reason that that you know I think companies are smart now I think the the one company that's straddling that a little bit better is Resolve, which is that Resolve is adding all these features that are really great for creators, but they're also adding all these, because they, they almost everybody goes, almost all these films go through Resolve at some point. And that's the real um, pin that they have is that they're able to 
you, you everything's going to get colored and resolved before it goes out to the rest of the world. And so that's so people are interacting with resolve all the time. So they keep on making it better for filmmakers, but they're also making it really good for visual effects artists and they're making it really good for creators. It's an by the way, the resolve what they're trying to do is absolutely insane. Like they no one should try to do what 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 black magic is doing. I'm um, trying to integrate everything together and build all those feature sets across audio, visual effects editing, color, everything else is totally insane. And it may end up being the thing that kills their company, <laughs> you know, because there's so many things we're not getting because they're paying all, they're spending all this money on Resolve. That said, if they actually get to the other side, you know, it's kind of like what Apple did with M1. It's kind of, no one should try to do what Apple's doing. That's super, super, super hard. And if you get to the other side, it's going to be very hard to compete with, you know, and so that's the, that's the thing that we, you know, a lot of us are watching to see what happens. Keep your eye on this space. We'll continue to talk about it every day, practically here on Office Hours. Let's go to our next question. Next question is from Guy Cochran in Seattle, Washington. And Guy asks, would having a large screen display showing PGM be helpful for those in the field visiting booths live? Dave Troutman? Well, maybe not PGM, but, you know, our operation here is driven by Mukana. And I'd really like to see Mukana in the field on the tripod or on the pod that is underneath the camera so that anyone in the field can look at it and know what the audience question is. And also instructions to the field team can be done through Mukana. Alex? Yeah, um, so this is my fault, by the way. We didn't have it up, up, set up because I brought an iPad and then forgot to get it all configured and was so caught up in doing all these talks that I never introduced it. That said, um, I will see, say that uh, I think it's very hard. So if you're in front of that camera and walking around. I actually think, and, and I felt when, when I watched it being used before, it's a little bit of a distraction for the folks that are on the ground. What we really need to do is make sure we have solid comms, which did fall apart. <clears throat> Unity fell apart a lot on the feet in the field, which is what I expected, because that's why I was trying to get the, the live view working. And we had some just wiring issues with the live view. The live view will do it. We just didn't get it this time. By the time we get to Cinegear, the live views will be, the, the return channels will be much more you know, figured out there. Um, so we're working on a bunch of news, a bunch of new things based on NAB that now we might be able to get the Unity to work just fine for that. But anyway, we there's a couple other things we may do. We're talking to other folks to do that. I It's really important when you're on, in the field to have your hands and to have your ability to look at things, pick up things. Even the handheld thing for me was a little bit, you know, when, when I did, we did the HDR test and it was the only time I was really, you know, walking around um, it was fine, except that I just kept on having to use my, my you know, yeah, I kept on using this. And, and it's fine to do that. But I think that, like, when we do, uh, if if I do much in in camera at Cinegear, I'd much rather have a headset, you know. And then, and then, and then I also uh, really felt like you really want to be in the moment. I think that when you saw the HDR test, I think we were just doing this kind of wandering through. And I think we want to do a lot, a lot more of that. Um, we were wandering around them. I think that, and, and I think the other teams did that as well. I think that you, we do want some places to go. One of the things we're really thinking about is having one team that's very strict about like they plan out every half hour they're going to be somewhere and they get all set up and that might be the tank version or that might be something else. And another version that is someone just, you know, roaming around, you know, so we cut to someone doing big things, someone roaming around. And we're, this is really the discussion. I don't want to take it any further. We'll Ask that question again tomorrow. Let's just, let's move on from here, but let's ask that question tomorrow. We'll talk more about it. I realize this is a Friday question. Yeah, Dave, did you have one last little comment on the current stuff? 
I guess I wanted to say that someone you're visiting at a, a vendor would see that they have an audience, that there's a grid of people there who are prepared to engage with you. And that mm -hmm. might be a whole it different just, impression. That it just slows the, it just slows the production down a lot. Like that's, yeah. that's the issue. So. All right, let's move on to the next question. And it's from Dave. Uh, next question is from Dave Troutman in Edmonton, Canada. And Dave asks, what was it like to be a leading, to be leading a camera around the uh, floor during your HDR test? How did it feel to you, Alex? Uh, it was, it was a lot of fun. Um, you know, so that, if, if you saw the HDR test, we took it down, we're going to put up some little clips of it and so on and so forth. But um, if you saw little clips of it, that's how I've covered things in the past, which is that I just kind of talked to the camera. I talked to you. Javier was there with me, which was great. Javier is amazing. He was so, fabulous. <laughs> he was so good. And and so so um, I really enjoyed being there with Javier. And the team was great because we were, you know, it, it, we were a big train. Like we definitely got a lot of attention because there was people shooting behind the scenes. There was, um, you know, uh, Philippe was was doing the... Um, you know, had the, he had the surround mic that was there and then we had the backpack and then we had some, you know, it was just, it was a big snake that was kind of moving through the whole thing. Uh, we do have to make that a little, probably a little bit more compact, um, to make that work, but it was, it was a lot of fun. And you definitely saw the style that I, that I tend to take on, which is that I just like to wander through, talk to people, look at things, you know, and, and kind of give, give people this hodgepodge of stuff. And I, I think there's place for everything. It's just the way I like to do it. Um, and I've done that for sometimes six hours straight, you know, where we just switch the backpacks out and I just keep talking and we hand it off to someone for 30 minutes to, for me to take a moment and then come back and do it again. So, so I'm very comfortable in that, in that space. Um, the, uh, I thought that, uh, it was, it was, um, it was really well done. So, and, and it was, uh, you know, Edwin was the camera operator and he did great. The, and and so anyway, so that I think it's great. And again, I feel like I'm we're getting into a Friday discussion here. So we'll I'll pass it on to Chris. Chris, does heavy does Javier ever stop smiling? <laughs> I don't know. He's such a good guy. He was great. Yeah, yeah. And it was so nice to see it from the point of view of somebody who'd never been there before, coming up from Mexico City and and joining the team. It was just uh, that was I, I, the word I use is charming. The whole thing was just really fun to watch. Yeah. Let's go to the next question. Uh, next question is um, from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. And Andy asks, thoughts on using something like Switcher Studio at trade shows to create branded packages um, with multiple cameras on the fly? Well, if you're shooting for later, I think you might have some uh, luck with that. I tell you, Wi-Fi is really tough. So anything that has any wireless connectivity on the show floor at NAB is sketchy at best i think alex your thoughts yeah and we'll keep it qu quick too you can ask this again tomorrow because i think we're kind of we keep on getting into this uh you know like not we're not really talking about the video from any we're talking about our coverage which I, is totally understandable um but uh the um i think that anything wireless if you're not using really heavy wireless in in it's not just a wi-fi but it's just anything with wireless in in with that much equipment and that much rf uh, is really really difficult, and so um, I think that uh, we we would probably not not do that. I also don't think you need multicam most of the time, um, and we had a little trouble with it with the HDR one because we were moving a tripod around. Um, really, in the past, what we've done is we just have someone handheld. You know, like we for something that's as short as an hour, we we usually have just done handheld cameras um, or Steadicam or. Um, uh, no, Steadicam can be a little heavy for an hour. You can do about 40 minutes in that. But but the other thing is you get one of those big arms that comes up and hangs, and then you can go for a very long time. So um, we'll, we'll experiment with some new stuff for Cinegear. Let's go to the next question. 
Next question is from John Snyder in Reno, Nevada. And he said, which theme was the most prevalent, cloud production, AI, or virtual production using LED walls? Alex? LED walls were the big one. I mean, it, they were all big. But the biggest one that we saw was just LED, 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 LED. People would talk about AI. We just didn't see, I mean, we didn't see as much of it. The, the big thing, you know, text-based editing. <laughs> yeah, Chris, Chris is very certain there. Um, and But all three, I would say all three were a big discussion. You know, people are trying to figure out how to do and uh, how to do a lot more production in the cloud. Uh, and but but and there was definitely a lot of AI. But I think that what we saw in the in the um, the theme in the expo was all the different ways of using uh, LEDs. I just have to say, from being a longtime NAB participant, every year you'd see the theme of the show, and I'd say that they maybe have a. 400 batting average. You know, this is the year of 3D that <laughs> comes in. It wasn't the year of 3D at all. Maybe we start seeing some stuff in a couple of years. Sometimes they get it. Sometimes they didn't get it right I mean, at all. One of the things that we did see that was kind of, what I thought was really interesting is um, also uh, Mimic, which is a different, is kind of a new lighting system that came out of Kinoflow. And it's really interesting to see how Kinoflow is pivoting, you know, because I think that there was a moment where they were having trouble because they were, they had kinos and there was an LED, but but we're going to try to get some more coverage. We'll probably do a lot more about that when we get to Cinegear. Um, but uh, but it was an interesting, that was another piece that I only got to see in passing, but it looks really impressive. Yeah. Uh, next question. Next question is from Alex Forty Golner in London. And Alex asks, after being happy with the pressure um, that the office space army <laughs> with insta360 which which companies whether they had booths at nab or not would you like to apply some pressure on a private uh 40 uh standing uh, by sir oh, private 40 standing by <laughs> that's funny <laughs> um alex you know we've been hesitant we've started and stopped like we're okay we're gonna have everyone email somewhere and it's mostly me just figuring out the structure of it I think we need to think about someone different every week that we're going to like, hey, we would really like to see a feature. Let's, you know, put something in the in the email, like everybody go, everybody go ask for this. And so, um, so I think that we're, uh, but I think I, I, you know, Insta360 is one of them. Uh, I think that asking Blackmagic for a PDZ camera would be uh, another another place that we'd like to apply some some pressure. Um, yeah, and and so uh, I think we should we should start making standing lists of things that we'd like to do, and then all act as a group. Um, so it's uh, you know, and see if we can't uh, move move the industry forward a little bit. So stay tuned for more of that. Known in the Reddit space as brigading, so assemble yeah. the crew, the crew, and everybody asks for the same thing at the same time, and see if we can move the mountain. Uh, next question. Next question is from John Snyder uh, in Reno, Nevada. Did anyone get hands on the new small rig tripod, and how did it compare? Alex, did you see it there? I saw it there. I didn't get. To, I didn't. Get, it was a. Their booth was really busy. That's all I got to say. And I wasn't there for very long. It was really hard to get a hold of anything um, at their booth. And so what was funny was, is that, you know, that there's certain booths that you see a lot of, that's really, really busy. And the DJI, for so the small rig one, I wasn't able to look at it. The tripod looks really good. I, I want to get one and just try to play with it and see how it turns out. It, it looks like a really well-designed tripod. The uh, the DJI booth, there, there's this uh, basically a virtual gearhead where you have the gears that you would have for a gearheaded um, tripod, but it's just wireless to a to a head. And it's funny because all of DJI's booth will be totally swamped, and that will always be by itself because no one no one that buys DJI stuff knows what that is. And filmmakers are all like, "Oh, I'm just going to use a gearhead," and I'm always like, 
I, 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 that means I can always walk over and just play with my favorite, my favorite piece of equipment that I can't afford. <laughs> like, and it's like, it's just the most magical thing. And I just go over and look at it and then go someday, someday I'll sell my house and buy this. All right. All right. Yeah. That was the best part sometimes of NAB was the big camera manufacturers, Sony, Panasonic, JVC, um, that all of them had a little diorama thing they set up with models and perfect mm -hmm. lighting. And then all of their cameras around in a big semicircle. So you can start down at the little guy cameras that I can afford, but you can go all the way up to the broadcast stuff yeah. and actually shoot with them. And it's just such a fun hands-on thing. Hey, Alex, I did want to ask you, did you get to the show floor at all on Sunday? And if so, did you notice any difference in terms of the civilian, you know, we're letting the regular people in on Sunday as opposed to everything starts Monday morning just for the business people. It didn't really make any difference. Monday was a lot more busier. Sunday was Sunday. And I think that they would have done better on Saturday. But on hmm. Sunday, as a, they, I don't, starting on Sunday, I, I understand why they did it. So here's the advantage of doing Sunday is that it starts slow. And that gives all the booths, the hardest part if you work a booth is uh, um, is getting it all you ringing out everything so the first couple hours of the first day are usually the worst um, for a tr booth this button isn't working that wire isn't working that monitor is flickering and you try to get all that stuff done but you're loading in and you know people that you don't know built it and there's all the stuff that you have to kind of you know figure out so I think that that while there wasn't a lot of people on Sunday there I mean compared to the Monday Monday was the busiest day um, by far. And it did seem like a lot of people came in on Sunday. And I think that that's what's nice for people who are traveling is being able to travel over the weekend is is something that a lot of people actually like to do. Um, so they were able to do that rather than having to fly in on a Tuesday. That takes another work day you know, out of their system. So so I think that there was some, and it gave people, I think it gave people a chance to come in Friday night or Saturday, do what we did, which was have a big dinner on Saturday night. Um, and 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 do that, and then and then be able to, and it allows the booths again to um, have a day where they kind of ring everything out. They get to practice everything. On Sunday morning, I, I was over at um, Ross and talking to Bo, and you know the the woman who was doing the doing the demo of their LED wall was great, but you could tell she was still figuring out the script. <laughs> you know, like yeah. it was still, you know, like she was still ringing it out. So being able to have a day that isn't as busy, if you do it during the weekday, it'll always be the busiest day. It's going to be that first day. Um, by putting it on Sunday, they they were able to, I think, have something that was a little bit more uh, manageable and approachable. So I think they're going to keep on. I, I think it was a successful model. Again, I think that, so Sunday was not, a, you know, I, I don't think it got more people. I think it actually got less people. I think a lot of people don't even know what NAB is in Vegas and, you sure. know, you're, you know, drawing it in. So I don't think that it's just another big conference to them. So I don't think it brought that many civilians in um, to make that actually happen. I will say that the West Hall is a long way away from the North Hall. Like that's that's what that's what I was left with. If I all I can say is if I was a vendor, I would never ever put my booth in the West Hall because I went over there for meetings once. AWS was over there and the switch and all the transport technologies were all over there. And I felt I felt really bad. I that was the for to have one place to go that's super quiet. I think there must have been rules in the West Hall of you can't make any noise because it was like the quietest. Really? I, I don't know, but it was like, it was like the quietest place. There was no, you know, there was no, um, it didn't seem like anybody had open speakers anywhere. You know, it was a very odd thing. So, but I, I, you know, and I understood the transport technologies over there. I felt bad for the, there's a couple other booths um, that got, I don't know, somehow, you know, hornswoggled into going over there. Maybe they thought it was, maybe they were told it was a new booth or whatever, but it was so, um, I walked over there for a meeting and a lunch 
and I and I thought to myself, I'm going to look around real quickly because I'm never coming back. <laughs> like, you know, like this is too <laughs> this is too far away. And so, um, and so I think, and I think that the the big the hall that was the most fun was the central hall. This this year, I think it was uh, the you know it, the central hall. I admit is almost always the funnest hall. Like it's just got lots of smaller booths and it's got lots of little things that you can touch and play with. Um, a lot of the other booths, you know, sometimes have stuff that we can look at on on the web. The South Hall had a lot because the sheer size of it had a lot there. But the the one hall that was probably the densest of I stop and look at things has always been the Central Hall for me. Did you get out back of the Central Hall to where all the outdoor circumstances are? And was there no, anybody I, out there? No, it's it's it was in the front. I think I I I didn't. The, the, my time schedule. I, I barely saw. Yeah. I was so fr- that's why I was so frustrated about NAB was that it was my first one back and. I you know, didn't get to see as much, nearly as much as I wanted to. I worked a booth one year, same thing. I couldn't see any of the friends that I'd normally go wandering around and check on because I was stuck in one place the whole time. So I, that resonates with me. Uh, Chris, you had a thought about this? Uh, Alex, you just mentioned the small booth thing, the Central Hall. Walk through Central Hall, I saw a booth that had a jog wheel. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was like a, you know, switches and bears on my kind of mm-hmm. booth. They had a jog wheel with a video screen in it. Yeah. In the wheel itself? So in the it, wheel. So like if you were scrolling through like videos to play back, it would show you the yeah. thumbnails. You go, oh, that's the one. Like yeah. this. Oh, some ringer. So it didn't, the, the picture didn't rotate. No, <laughs> I couldn't the picture stayed that flat, out. but the wheel yeah. around it. Okay. I was yeah. going. I need this in my life. <laughs> yeah, there was. Interesting. I, it was funny. I went over to um, uh, Studio Technologies and I was talking to Gordon and, and, and we were pushing the buttons. And I was like, I really want a quiet button for my for my my model two hundred five. I was like, I'd pay you to put a quieter, quieter button in there, you know, than than the, than the punch. And he's like, Oh, we'll take a look at it. And then I went over and found the button. <laughs> when I went down the central hall. I took pictures of it, and I'm, I'm like, I'm like sending Gordon like these little these little buttons. Like this button doesn't make. I, I tried a hundred buttons, and this button doesn't make much noise. I'm sorry. Uh, anyway, all right. I think we're ready to go on to the next question. Uh, next question is from Peter Moore in Auckland, New Zealand. And Peter said, um, "For uh, one for Alex Lindsay, um, did you get a lot of fans coming up to you that may or may not have interrupted filming? How did you handle that? You know, I, I didn't have, uh, I mean, we definitely, people were calling out. Uh, we had a, a couple of people yelling like, we love office hours. It was, it was a funny, uh, it was a funny thing. I think we probably had that five or six times while we were doing the, the, the walkthrough I, because I wasn't out there as much as I, I expected. But I, I did say, I, I, I will say that a lot of people walked up and just talked about how, um, I mean, when I say a lot, probably 20 or 30 people while I was walking through um, stopped me to tell me how much they like office hours. And and then that's when you really realize there's a lot of people, <laughs> a lot of people watching the show. It doesn't look like huge numbers when you look at it, but it's just like who they are, how many times, you know, it's not always the same people watching every, every day. And so, um, so we did get stopped. We, for the, for the thing, I, again, I, I don't approach coverage of the expo as a tight show. Like I'm not trying to do an Olympics package. I am, we're having fun. And if I see someone, like we ran into Bo while we were walking through, um, you know, through the thing. And I just pulled Bo in and asked him what he saw. What do you see that's cool? What are, you, da, 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 what are your thought process? You know, and, and the idea is, is that I, I always want for the coverage, I kind of feel like I really like the idea of just we're exploring and we're running into people and we're asking them questions and we're, it's very, it's a much looser thing, which is one of the things I like about live. I don't think it necessarily cuts down into small pieces very well, but I think that, that for me, live on an expo floor is about exploring and, and talking to people and figuring things out. And so, um, 
anyway, so there, I, I, I didn't, I didn't have too much trouble with it. And I, I hope people keep on running, running into us while we're talking, because I'll just stop and chat with them. And again, I want to make sure that, and I think that what we'll, I, again, we'll talk more about this tomorrow, but I think that we'll think about how to build that structure. Absolutely. Next question. Next question is from uh, Jack Rupel in, in, um, uh, in Breckenridge, California. Uh, with audio being such an important component of video and office hours delving into 5.1, do you think quick cuts and editing for mono audio will become a thing of the past? Hmm. Quick cuts for audio. Alex? No, that will not become a thing of the past. 5.1 is really hard. <laughs> like we're doing it because it's hard. And, and, and it's not going to be something that there's a lot of pieces of, of, of it. I think that, you know, I think, and we'll talk about this tomorrow, that the 5.1 and some of the feedback I got from some folks are, that were pretty excited about it. Uh, I think it made a difference. And I think that people will do it, but it'll be something that a handful of people do that make a difference for coverage. It's just hard to handle all the mics and figure out all the bits and pieces in the translation. I mean, maybe it could be, become a bigger deal, but I think that when we're cutting quick cuts and doing editing and so on and so forth, I think that we're just trying to deliver the information. And I don't know if we, I don't know if we need all of that. The reason that we wanted to do surround was because we wanted to hear, we wanted to make you feel like you were there. And, and so we're going to keep on, it wasn't perfect, um, it, uh, the, you know, but I think it was a, it was a good first start. There you go. Next question. Uh, next question is uh, from Peter Moore in Auckland, New Zealand. Given the relationship uh, of a lot of OHAH people and panelists to, um, with, with Black Magic, how hard or otherwise is it to get resolved training? Do you have to go through BMD or are there third parties both? Um, I've looked around uh, for New Zealand training, by the way. And there are plenty of companies online at Ripple Training are old friends of ours, and they have a substantial amount of Resolve training. I think there are others. Alex? Um, the, uh, the Ripple Training is probably the best videos that you can buy to do that. Uh, for the kind of more hands-on, I would really go to Blackmagic's website and um, uh, see what... Um, see what they have. They, they have. they have webinar courses that are four days on Fairlight and four days on Resolve. And I will say I've sat in, I haven't sat in the whole one. My business, my business keeps me from being able to sit in the whole thing. Um, but, um, but I have been able to um, uh, look at, at some of those bits and pieces. And I, and I will say they're, they're really good courses. So they've really rung it, rung it out. Um, uh, a good friend of mine, Patty Montesian, I think has been designing those courses and she did stuff for Apple and Avid and, you know, like she's, like she's been, she's been doing this for a solid 25 years and it shows, you know, and the organization of them, when you sit down and take a webinar there, I mean, I think the webinar platform is a little old, um, but, uh, you know, to, to do this in, um, or the, I mean, they're doing Zoom webinars. It's just that I think they could do some, a, you know, a better platform for it. They're just using the vanilla platform and I feel like they could do something that's more aggressive. Um, but outside of that, um, I think that it, it is, uh, um, it's, it's pretty interesting. And so I, I would, I would highly recommend if you, if you do well with asymmetrical training and video, I would highly recommend ripple training. It, it's the, it's the best. And those guys just hit a hundred thousand on YouTube. I'm really, really proud of those guys. <laughs> Mark, Mark and Steve I've known for a long time and it all kind of started with Mac break video, me dragging these guys in and, and doing it. And now it's become a really massive thing. So, um, so anyway, so I think that they, um, uh, I, I would go there, but if you're gonna take the training, the best training that I've seen so far is the stuff that black magic does online. Let's go to the next question. Next question is from Tommy DeChance in St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh, what was your biggest letdown from the show? 
Ooh, Alex, do you have a something that didn't work? Uh, that all the that all the speaking was in person. That was my biggest. Uh, was my biggest letdown. Uh, you know, as far as the expo, the expo was great. Um, uh, I think that, again, I think the other letdown was probably what the West Hall being so far away. Like, I, I was excited. I was like, oh, it's a new hall. And I was thinking of it like West Hall as it relates to San Francisco. Um, there was one question, I don't think it was, I think I saw it go by with one of our other shows you know, earlier in the week or whatever, is where else could they do NAB. And I think, uh, mark my words, I think that they're going to end up doing NAB in San Francisco inside of the next decade. So, and the reason for that is that I think NAB is going to get, continue to get smaller as a physical footprint and larger as a virtual footprint. And and there's going to be a point because it would be, you know, for if, you, if everything got a little bit smaller and it would fit into Moscone instead, it would, um, it would be dramatic dramatically better to move around <laughs> like so for as a person walking around i would much rather I, I think that um you know or it gets smaller and just sits in the central hall and the north hall and you know i think and i, I think that that was one of the things that i was kind of confusing for me is that they didn't it didn't feel like they filled this um the central hall really completely and then they still went you know again i think they thought that they would go bigger than they would i I'll, it'll be interesting to see if they only do Central and North Hall next year. Like, I, I think that, that there's a distinct possibility that, that the, or, you know, because I don't think they're going to, I don't think it's going to get small enough to go into the West Hall by itself, but the West Hall is a hike. And I think that a lot of the smaller booths that were in the West Hall will not want to do that again. And, you know, it, it, it's good for transmission, but I wouldn't do it with anything else. So, that, the, let it, you know, that I think those are my, my things anyway. What what would happen if they did Cinegear at the same time and put it in something like the West Hall or some equally kind of congruent other trade show? You could put other things in there. I don't think Cinegear would want to be tied yeah, up with not. NAB yeah. because those are two very different markets. You know, the yeah. Cinegear is all film and, and NAB is broadcast and film, but but it's I think Cinegear would get swallowed up by by NAB. Um so I think that they they'd probably wanna wanna stay separate. Yeah. Interesting. Uh next question. Next question is from uh, Robin Cutshaw in Atlanta, Georgia. Any movement from Black Magic on autofocus? Have they stole anybody from Sony? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's autofocus. If autofocus was easy, everybody would do it. Um, Sony um, has been working on it very hard for many, many years, and that it has shown. Uh, Panasonic spent millions and millions and millions of dollars to try to close the gap. You know, and they've done, I think, a pretty good job. Their newest um, stuff that was out that that's come out is um, is is close. To, it's either on par, or close to on par with with what the what Sony's done. Um, it is a really. It's a, this is like hard math to get this to work and do it well. And I think that I don't think Black Magic. I think I think it's just not where Black Magic is focusing its energy. I think it's going to fo- continue to focus it on. Um, things like resolve and and everything else, and I think that there's a because there's a use case. You know, a lot of times you don't need autofocus if you've got a lot of operators, and they're you know like when you're in the film world, that's why they call them cine, cinema cameras. When you're in the film world, someone's manually controlling focus, and so it's just it's a autofocus is really a creator problem, not a film problem or a TV problem. So film and TV are all manual focus anyway, so they don't need autofocus. So when we talk about autofocus, we're excited about it because I can sit here now and go like, you know, like this and it'll focus and I go back like this and it doesn't focus, but that's a creator problem. Um, For when you do real film production, when you do real TV production, that they're completely controlling it. So it doesn't really affect black magic in that way. But for creators, it's a real 
the real problem. Most creators I've talked to that have, I've asked, like, why aren't you using black magic? They're like, autofocus. You know, like they just, it's one person or two people trying to get things done. And it's really hard to, to manage. And I noticed we had trouble with that with the stuff that when I was walking around the floor of staying in focus because we were using a black magic camera. And when you're moving around with a tripod and doing everything else and then trying to stay focused, it was very, very difficult where if we had had a Sony instead, um, it, that it would have been a much more, it just would have been just like snapping on us all the time. Next question. Next question is from Douglas Carmichael. Douglas asks, we, we talk about the latest products and the standard of the day, but did you see any products that have the potential to help build deeper, stronger communities and not just push content to the audience? Hmm, that's an interesting question, Alex. Yeah, I didn't, you know, the, this isn't, I think we might see more of that at Infocom, to be honest. I think that there wasn't, I think that the biggest thing that we saw kind of floating around within all of those are the new Zoom integrations. So we saw, you know, Zoom made the big announcements that Andy came out to talk about on Friday. And you're seeing um, a lot of Zoom being put into all these different applications. Um, I think that, you know, we are going to have Epifan, we'll have Cinemaker, we'll have Mimo, all coming on and, and showing us examples over the next uh, couple um, uh, months. And so, uh, but I think that the thing that I saw the most that is going to help build stronger communities is being able to have more roundtable discussions. And those are become are about to become super easy to do. Uh, maybe not at the scale that we do them at, but but definitely um, that is going to be a lot easier as, as it keeps on moving forward. So that's the thing that I was probably struck with the most. Cool. Next question. Uh, next question is from Sean Pickering in um, Law... Uh, uh, Loughbra, uh, UK, and uh, Sean uh, asks, I heard that YOLO Live and Obsbot were working together and that they were announcing the YOLO Box Pro would be able to work soon with version two of the Obsbot tail, not the tiny, uh, which is a wireless PTZ camera, uh, to which they are adding an HDMI out. So there's not really a question there, but that's interesting if that is true. Alex, did you see that on the show floor? I did not see it, but I'm I'm really interested in what he just talked about there. <laughs> so yeah. what we'll do is we'll reach out and see. I mean, we're gonna one of the things we want to move towards to, to do more of is demos of things. And so uh, how do we demo some of these things? How do we test those? And so we're gonna be more aggressive about getting the hardware in and, and you know, not me just buying it, but giving people an opportunity to do that. So so stay tuned for that. Okay, at the moment we have one more question, so we may end a little early today, but that's fine. We've had a lot of work the last week here, so uh, last question, Alex. Uh, last question is from Douglas Carmichael, and Douglas asks, what interesting products uh, that leveraged 5G mobile networks did you see at the show? Was there a ton of bonded cellular stuff for broadcast out there? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people are talking about it. So they, you know, they're they're trying, you know, there's a bunch, every company that's doing some version of wireless for cameras is thinking about cellular coverage. And so whether that's bonded cellular coverage or 5G coverage or single 5G modems, I think that, so LiveView um, and, um, you know, a lot of Degero and a lot of the other ones are all talking about the, you know, that that integration. So, um, but we'll, we, we should probably see more. Theoretically, when, when 5G works in the 10 places that it works in the United States, well, um, it, it is, uh, you don't need to bond anything because the bandwidth is so high. But unfortunately, the coverage is so spotty that for most of the places where we want to use a backpack, uh, you know, if we, if, where, where 5G works, I'm like, I can do a wireless and get a wired connection call today. <laughs> it's, just, it's, just not, it's not in a place that needs it for me for production. Uh, where I need it is usually places I can't use it. 
All right. Thank you all for being here today and for listening to Office Hours. Tomorrow is going to be our post-mortem, so to speak, on everything coverage-wise, all the stuff that we did from the floor at NAB. It's been a fascinating week. I know I've learned a ton. I hope you have, too. So uh, if you're here tomorrow, get ready. I think the, the floor teams who did a magnificent job over the course of the last few days will all be here, and we'll talk through what succeeded, what failed, what struggles they had. There were a lot of moments I know that I was just amazed with, uh, things that I did not expect. Some of the things went as expected, but things like that process car trailer thing was just mind-boggling to see uh, live. Um, don't forget, after hours, the discussion continues after all of this. We'll be back tomorrow. We have some thank yous, as always. Thank you so much to everybody who was on the panel today. We appreciate your volunteer work and coming here every day to help people understand this technology. To our um, to everybody who puts questions in the system, our producer uh, audience, you're you're fabulous, and we couldn't run this show without your questions. We really appreciate your being here and doing that everything every day. And as always, the back end crew we have we have an amazing group of people spread out all over the planet who help us with this show on every day. We're about to roll the credits. And when we do that, you'll see all of their names. Please pay attention. These people are working incredibly hard in every corner of the planet to help bring you office hours every day. Thanks for watching. We'll see you tomorrow. Already pivoting to Senegir. I was researching Senegir. Here we go. Here we go. Next is it the same? Is it same hall as last year? Paramount. Paramount. I'm Paramount a lot. Oh, oh that'll be fabulous. I know people at Paramount. So now we're going to see if we can get a good connection and a place to, place to do things. Awesome. Yeah, so I'm going to talk to some friends there. So we'll see how that goes. Do we know what the dates are? Uh, it's, the, it's the weekend right before. It's the Friday and Saturday before Dub Dub. So it's like 3rd and 4th or 4th and 5th or 1st and 2nd or 8th and 9th or 12th and 13th. I don't know. It's somewhere there. Cool. It's like, Somewhere in that area. We're Are you thinking about an Airbnb again? Uh, I'm going to think about it, but we have to see if people will do it. So <laughs>